closed uh, equal to the required number. <coughs> to the department, I say the Honourable Minister, uh, I'm also informed that uh, also the Honourable Deputy Minister uh, is present uh, in the meeting. I'm not sure whether the DM for, for higher education, I was also informed, will be present here. Uh, I'm not sure whether he's in yet. Um, the DM from uh, National Treasury indicated that, uh, unfortunately, Good morning, honorable members, honorable ministers, and our honorable guests. Chairperson, you are not audible. I can you hear us? I was also wondering whether it was me. Let me let me take out the the, the video. Um, yes, Chairperson. Um, we have received the following apologies. Honorable Minister Nzimande, you won't be able to join us, and the DG from National Treasury. Mr. Mohojane, they won't, they've got prior commitments. And as you indicated, the, the Deputy Minister from Treasury will join us from half past nine, Chair. Thank you. Okay, can you fly the agenda, Aaron? Okay, we today we are dealing with the um, matters that relate to the fuel challenges that we are having. Uh, 
we will start with the department and then uh, yes um i'm not sure whether dmre and self are ready let's give them up until um, i know they may not take that time can i give to the department of mineral resources and energy and self Sorry to interrupt you, but I I do want to bring something to your attention. Um, We received these presentations at half past eight this morning. Now, there is a standing sort of um, position in Parliament that we should have at least 24 hours notice of documents and presentations to give us a chance to go through them before we consider them. Chair, I, I do wish you would uh, address this matter with the department and with uh, any presenters going forward. Uh, we did receive national treasuries yesterday and then an updated version today, but but the department at half past eight this morning, I received it. Thank you, Chair. I think you're from the issue. Maybe the department, I'm not sure whether they want to address that now or we will uh, request them to put it in writing why the uh, submissions or the presentation was started. Yes, the standard practice is that is 24 hours uh, before, but uh, let's uh, uh, it's not going to be a precedent setting because of the seriousness and the urgency of the matter. Otherwise, under normal circumstances, we wouldn't be entertaining the presentation if they arrived outside the mark of 20. I am there. Okay. The department can continue. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Chairperson, members of the Portfolio Committee. Um, I'm here with the team, the TGTGs, and the big army of people who are here to answer questions. But I will call on DDJ Makovella to lay this presentation. DDJ. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Minister. 
Good morning, Honorable Chair, Honorable Minister, Honorable Deputy Minister, Honorable Members. I hope I'm audible. DG, DDGs, and fellow senior government officials and other guests of the Portfolio Committee. Uh, I am going to, first of all, uh, we really want to appreciate the opportunity to come and present to the Portfolio Committee uh, on this matter because it is a matter that uh, from our side is of serious concern and uh, we really appreciate that we are given this opportunity. The issue of uh, fuel prices, uh, so the contents I'm going to go through um, all of those, but I just want to go into the background. And uh, I really would like the person who who is the driving the presentation to follow my lead um, as much as possible. <clears throat> First of all, um, what I would want to indicate is that this is a global issue. So we have seen a situation where fuel prices have reached uh, unsustainable levels, uh, both in our country and uh, globally. These levels, in fact, what we're going to be witnessing is really unsustainable for any economy. Uh, that's what we want to put before the committee. Of course, in our country, we've also reached uh, very high record levels and those uh, levels keeps on getting breached. Now, the, the other issue that we want to bring to the attention is that the growing conflict in Europe is disrupting not only uh, prices, but supply chains. I will deal with that uh, later on. What we want to emphasize, though, is that this is a global issue. And as we, you know, as we sit today, no country is going to be spared. And this, we believe, will also move on to, you know, food and all other commodities. The developing economies, unfortunately, we believe, uh, will suffer more than uh, developed economies. And again, we will expand on this. One of the reasons why developing economies will suffer is that when it comes to prioritizing cargoes of uh, crude oil, but also uh, mainly of a finished product, the developing countries uh, tend to be um, deprioritized. So developed countries normally prioritize themselves and they take the cargoes. And then you find that uh, developing countries then uh, have to make do with what is left. Um, economies will, will struggle, that is our view, but of course, Treasury is here to talk to that. What we wanted to indicate, though, is that uh, this is a moving target. Um, when the presentation was prepared, we were looking at increases in excess of two rands per liter um, in this period. Uh, of course, uh, there are developing developments now that have taken place in China that may actually um, help to reduce this. 
but I'll talk to that uh, in the following slides. Next slide, please. So <clears throat> if we talk to um, the causes of high fuel prices, first of all, it is a fact that uh, since the beginning of the year, there was a 50% increase uh, in the price of crude oil as of last week. The price increased to uh, about $140 per barrel. It has since come down and, and trading around $100 uh, per barrel, uh, which represents about 20%. And again, when I say it's a moving target, is that when the presentation was concluded, um, the, the, you know, the increase was sitting around uh, 30%. It is affected, of course, by various factors. But I think the greatest factor right now is geopolitics. And where, that's where I would want to spend more time. In our view, the conflict uh, that is uh, unfolding in Europe is no longer a Russia-Ukraine conflict. But uh, it is a conflict that involves many countries because uh, NATO countries uh, and other European countries have been drawn into the conflict uh, economically, uh, not necessarily militarily. Now that then makes this into a, a global conflict. Uh, and, and I will expand on that uh, in, in, in other slides. But the big issue is that uh, when you impose sanctions on the third largest producer of oil, you will see unintended uh, consequences. Of course, Europe has uh, decided not to join the US in imposing um, you know, sanctions on, uh, on, on, on Russian oil. Next slide, please. If I move on to the next slide, uh, the, the second cause of uh, yeah, the second cause of these high fuel prices is a stance that has been taken by OPEC to manage increases in the production of uh, crude oil in support of higher prices. I think uh, OPEC plus. And it's and significant that OPEC plus, because it's no longer just the OPEC members. They've been joined by other countries. And that's also significant in this global uh, conflict that is unfolding for us. The stance that OPEC has taken throughout uh, since the beginning of the pandemic is basically to limit crude, uh, crude oil supply. And for us, that is an issue that needs to be confronted uh, because uh, the economies require more oil. But, um, you know, uh, OPEC Plus has said we will determine uh, the rate at which we provide uh, oil. Now, the third bullet there is quite significant because in the new OPEC Plus, uh, which is a group of countries that produce oil, the two biggest members are the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Russian Federation. Now, what you've seen, for example, is that with this uh, you know, limiting of crude oil supply, 
it basically leads to higher oil prices. Um, it, you know, at a time when economies are actually rebounding from the COVID, um, you know, uh, situation. Now, the, the third issue is that uh, since the vaccination uh, post-COVID uh, have picked up, there's, there's been a supply-demand imbalance. And I think that uh, the oil and gas market, uh, in our view, underestimated the rebound of economies post uh, successful vaccination campaigns in another in a number of countries, and that has created, you know, a shortage of uh, crude oil supply, and with that, of course, it has to uh, lead to higher uh, oil prices. So these are the three main causes, um, and we believe that uh, if the conflict, there are signs that the conflict is being managed, such as we saw in the last 24 hours, with uh, you know, the possibility of there being a diplomatic solution. The crude oil price has uh, come down um, you know, because of that, but also uh, importantly, what has happened in China uh, in the last uh, 24 to 48 hours, where one of the biggest uh, cities uh, in China has basically seen a resurgence of COVID. Now, that resurgence of COVID is uh, helping the price to come down. Um, and of course, we know that that is not a fundamental issue but it is helping nevertheless uh, to bring the prices down uh, because uh, Shenzhen, uh, which is the city in China, is one of the biggest cities in China and it's also an economic hub. And if there are uh, any possibilities of a lockdown there, then the demand will decrease and then the prices then tend to follow what happens uh, in those uh, big economies. Now, what is happening also in the last bullet is that we are consuming more than what is being produced. And that is also helping to uh, prop up uh, the, the oil price. So in effect, these are the causes of uh, the, the price uh, that is high. But the biggest contributor, perhaps 50% contributor to that, is the conflict that is unfolding in Europe, which we believe is no longer between two countries. Now, one of the things that uh, I indicated at the beginning is that global supply chains are going to be affected by this war. We are seeing um, evidence of that um, in the... Uh, availability of certain products. So if uh, we look at the under-recovery uh, that SEF uh, has posted for diesel, it is much higher than that of, uh, of petrol. And it is an indication of the growing uh, global uh, shortage of diesel. Now, why is that? We believe that, uh, you know, one, the diesel that was flowing to Europe from the Russian Federation 
is no longer flowing as much because the some of the diesel that would have gone to European markets is being diverted uh, to the war effort. But of course, the war effort is not only being, uh, you know, um, impacting only one country. All countries uh, in Europe probably are now preparing, you know, their uh, militaries for some kind of response. And we know that once you mobilize a military, then the usage of diesel does increase. The other issue that we, we are concerned about is that uh, jet fuel will also come under pressure, uh, particularly because in the Northern Hemisphere, you are going into a holiday season. And uh, that holiday season sees a lot of aircraft uh, that move people towards uh, you know, their destinations. Uh, so we anticipate that there could be a, a pressure on jet fuel uh, going forward. Now, the, 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 the shortage of diesel has been um, uh, experienced in, for example, some states in the U.S., and because the stocks were low coming out of the lockdown period, and they have not been able to recover. Um, in fact, there has been an indication that the diesel stocks in certain countries are the lowest they've been um, in about um, eight years, and, and that is uh, having an impact there. If we move on to the next slide, we just wanted to indicate the importance of the Russian Federation to oil and gas. And we believe that this should not be undermined. It's significant. And when decisions are taken, then, uh, you know, this has to be taken into account. So the top three producers of oil in the world are the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and uh, the Russian Federation. And this in a system that is interconnected. The global energy system is interconnected. Um, so if you take out Russia, then you have an impact on the system that is interconnected. It produces about 10 and a half million barrels of crude per day, which is quite significant. And they only consume um, a third of that. Uh, the rest is exported. So when you ban Russian crude oil, you remove effectively 7% of uh, the crude oil you know, uh, from, from the international market. That's what you do. Um, so that is something that is, should not be taken lightly. I know that... Uh, you know, we're not here to talk about diplomatic efforts and so on, but the unintended consequences sometimes are underestimated. The reason Europe has decided not to follow the lead of the U.S., it's because they depend very much on uh, Russian uh, natural gas as well as um, as well as uh, finished products, 
and crude oil. When the ban was announced last week by the US, there was an assumption from the market that there would be a global shortage. Obviously, if uh, Europe had followed suit, uh, there would have been a global shortage. And then that's why the price went to $140 uh, for a moment uh, last, last week. So we believe that uh, when these decisions are made, there must be that consideration to say, but this is also going to hurt other economies. Um, and, and we're not, you know, in any way uh, interfering with what other countries have done in response. Now, I think the, the next slide talks to the impact on the economy. Again, we think that uh, Treasury probably will spend more time on this. But uh, what we wanted to indicate is that we are in the middle of a global economic war. And as a country, we are in an affected party. We are witnessing these uh, high prices mainly because you know, of something that we have no control over. These fuel prices obviously have a knock-on effect, and I think I won't spend too much time there because uh, our colleagues will probably uh, say more. Uh, we, the cost of public and private transport has increased and will continue to increase. Um, we feel it in our own pockets um, that uh, you know, traveling to work is actually uh, becoming quite, quite uh, an expense. And we therefore believe that uh, people will have to juggle now because expendable income will be reduced and this will have an impact on, on, on growth, uh, you know, economic growth, because we won't be buying the things that we would have bought ordinarily because we spend that money on, on fuel. Now, the increase in inflation, we think that it's unavoidable. Um, the U.S., for example, uh, what was indicated is that their rate of inflation now it's the highest it has been in 40 years. And uh, that is as a result of what is going on. Of course, there are other issues on their side, but uh, I think that it, it is an indication. Of course, we wanted to say that uh, what we have seen is that our own central bank, the Reserve Bank, um, they tend to frown upon inflation. And of course, it's because of policy. And that uh, if rates are hiked, that again will have an impact on, you know, our spending power as uh, as the population. Next slide, please. Now, what we would want to propose as interventions, uh, one is that uh, we need to be serious as a country about the level of self-reliance and interventions, investments in the overall energy system. What do we mean by that? We think that uh, we need to do everything possible to enable the exploration to take place. Uh, you know, the only thing that will cushion us is to have our own oil. 
to produce our own oil. Nothing else will help uh, in, in, in circumstances like these. These conflicts will from time to time crop up and we need to be able to respond to them. Now, in our country, what we have seen is that uh, we have these polarized debates on issues. And quite frankly, we believe that they are taking us nowhere. We need to find a way of discussing to say, this is where we are as a country. We must then be able to respond. We must talk about policy uh, interventions without polarization. Um, and and what, that's what we are seeing in other uh, jurisdictions. Depending on imported crude oil and products is proving to be unreliable. We are worried now. We are still okay for March. We think we are okay for April. But if this conflict goes on, we will be very concerned uh, because we will really be, you know, it will begin to move to security of supply um, issues. As we said, we need to encourage exploration for oil and gas on our shores. There is no other way. We must find our own oil. The investment in local refining, it is an imperative. In our view, a subref cannot be allowed to close. A, a buyer must be found for subref. We can no longer afford another refinery closing. Now, one encouraging um, development, uh, which we really appreciate, is the fact that uh, uh, Astron Energy, owned by Glencore, they have made a commitment uh, in public, but also to uh, the minister that the refinery in Cape Town will restart. And I think we welcome that and that we believe that that's what uh, responsible companies um, should be doing. Of course, they did have the major uh, accident before. They have managed to, you know, uh, to repair, and they are preparing for the startup. Those um, companies that have closed the refineries, in our view, we believe that they should partner with the existing refiners, um, particularly if you are a major player in the marketing. You know, if you have a major uh, retail network, we think that you should invest in existing refineries. And that's a conversation that we need to have uh, with, the, with the companies because um, you know, it can't be that there is a benefit from the existing policy framework uh, and yet you, you are not refining. Um, so it is a conversation that we will have to have uh, with the companies, uh, you can you have to refine something. For example, you can decide that you know I will only produce biofuels. Now, in the blending of uh, you know blending process that we we you know believe should be undertaken in the country, that's okay. But you are producing something. You can't be a major marketing player and produce nothing in country because then you are impacting the policy 
that was designed to sustain manufacturing. We have a BFP because it was designed to sustain manufacturing in the country, and it has done so. Uh, but some are opting to pull out of that. But uh, you know, those conversations we are going to have to have. Uh, can we move on to the next slide, please? So we also believe that uh, we now need to enable biofuels. Um, you know, it is it is the right thing to do. It will enable jobs. It will also reduce imports. Now. What has been one of the delays on this? It's, um, you know, the fact that uh, we have been risk averse. We don't want to subsidize biofuels. We think that it has to be, because in times like these, we then have to be in a position to blend even more and rely less on the imports. So that is an area that. Uh, we think requires uh, attention from the various government departments uh, uh, that some of which are here. The quotas um, on diesel exports, if we get to a point where we see that this diesel issue it becomes a reality, we will then have to think about prioritizing exports to SACU um, and then others will then have to <clears throat> will then have to you know deal with them on a case by case basis because we have to make sure that our country uh, has got sufficient uh, stocks, but uh, then also that uh, we are able to 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 supply our immediate. Uh, uh, trading partners being the, the SACO country. Energy saving measures, we believe that, uh, you know, must be implemented during this period of this major geopolitical event. We need to go back and say, should everyone be driving if they can afford, if they have the tools of trade uh, to work from home? These are things that have to be considered because we are in a a war situation, even though we are not involved, we are affected. So we'll have to think about whether we, 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 we do that uh, going forward. Companies that can have their people work from home, we think that they will be saving um, you know, their own uh, workers in terms of uh, transport costs. Now, the other thing is that, uh, you know, apart from saving lives, a uh, speed limit actually can also save fuel. We think that, uh, you know, we should actually then be encouraging everyone to even drive at 100 in a 120 zone. You will be amazed how much you save. Uh, you may not save on time, but you save a lot on fuel. Uh, because at 100, you, most vehicles will consume far less uh, fuel than you would consume at 120. We're just giving that as an example. These are things that voluntarily people need to implement in order to save their own pockets. They don't need to be enforced by 
by law. We don't need to change speed limits and all that. But people can drive at um, you know slower uh, speeds. Um, now, if the situation deteriorates, and we're saying if we don't believe that it is going to get to that, because it looks like diplomatic efforts are beginning to gather momentum, uh, we will have to consider, you know, restrictions. Um, these are things that you have to think ahead and say that, what would we do if we get to that point? Uh, because we don't know, you know, how the conflict uh, uh, develops going forward. We may reach a point where we then say, you know, uh, you fill up uh, 50 liters and, and, and that's it per, per visit. But this is not, we're not there. I want to emphasize we're not there. We don't think we will get there, but these are some of the things that already we've thought to say this is what probably would have to do. Now, a big um, intervention, there is a view, for example, New Zealand are considering removing for a few months uh, fuel taxes in order to help uh, their, their motorists and uh, the population. Now, we think that there is a better way of approaching this. Uh, of course, we are not, you know, a national treasury ourselves, but we think that, you know, supporting public transport, because there's already a framework that has been developed to support the, for example, the taxi industry uh, during the COVID uh, period. Probably that would work better because most of you know, workers in the, in the country, they use um, taxis to get to work. So probably if you support public transport, you provide relief there, it may work better. The second one is that, as we know, uh, wheat prices are going to be affected um, and food prices in general, because, you know, the Russian Federation and Ukraine are major exporters. Now, one consideration that needs to be uh, given is, is uh, food production. So if we support those two sectors, the public transport and the food sector, uh, if there are frameworks that are there, of course, this is something that we would have to, would have to be uh, uh, considered by national treasury. But we think that those are the only two options that are available. Um, you know, that, that, that could cushion the people who then transport most of the working, uh, you know, population to, to, to their working destinations. If you support food production, then the prices won't go up as much. In conclusion, what we want to say is that, uh, again, we want to re-emphasize that we are part of a global energy supply chain. So we unfortunately, we can't escape being affected by this international conflict. Um, this is a global issue. Um, it is beyond the fuel pricing formula. 
way beyond. Uh, this is geopolitics. What is driving the prices now is nothing else but the crude oil price. Um, and and, and that, is, that is it. There are questions that we've received to say, is there a possibility of repeating what was done in 2018? The answer is no, because at the time, the, the Slate account was positive, and then you know, we're able to use that Slate account to reinvest oil companies. Currently, because the oil has been going up and up and up, there isn't that space that is um, available for that to be uh, repeated. Now, the, there has been an intervention, which I think the colleagues will talk to by government, because uh, the fuel levy and the road accident fund levy, you know, um, has been has not been increased, and this has been done without a tax increase. And in our view, this is a sacrifice from the state because that revenue that would have been raised will still have to be raised elsewhere. So we want to say that, uh, you know, we are seized with the matter uh, that is uh, in front of us. We continue to monitor global uh, developments on a on an hourly basis, we talk to oil companies on an hourly basis. Um, you know, yesterday we had a, a discussion with uh, with Sapia, and uh, to confirm that we are still okay. And uh, what you know, what we've been assured is that we are okay. Um, you know, particularly for March, we are okay. Uh, orders for April have gone through, are on their way. But there is something that is beginning to develop uh, globally now is that uh, vessels have seen an opportunity. The owners of vessels have seen an opportunity to make money. So they are making the vessels, you know, the cost of moving crude oil and uh, products so high that it's becoming unaffordable. Uh, but that is a matter that we then uh, are going to be engaging uh, with them on to see what else uh, can be done. Is uh, SAPREF operating? Yes, SAPREF is still operating. And uh, I can indicate that uh, they are in the process of receiving a crude oil vessel um, next week. Uh, which will then offload to make sure that we are still able to produce, uh, you know, petroleum products um, locally. Uh, with that, Chairperson, thank you, thank you very much. Thanks, Honourable Minister. Chairperson. Okay, thank you, Honorable Minister and uh, the uh, DDG Makubela for for your 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 inputs uh, presentations. Um, I think uh, can we take national treasure? Certainly. Good morning, Chair, Honorable Minister, DGs, committee members, and colleagues here present. Um, 
I would just like to introduce the next presentation. So from the National Treasury side, we will be focusing on some background context to the recent rise in the fuel prices um, and then honing in on how this impacts on our outlook um, and then specifically some recommendations around the fuel price. So in terms of the uh, presentation, I'm joined by colleagues and going to hand over first to Mr. Clinton Joel um, and then Ms. Alia Kasim to take us through the presentation. Thank you. We must know also the person who's introducing the, 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 the presentation. Of course, uh, my apologies, Chair. I'm Numbuya Guma. I'm the Acting DDG for Economic Policy at the Treasury. Okay, no, that's fine. Thank you, sir. I'm just going to load the presentation on my side and then share my screen. Please let me know as soon as you can see it. Good morning, Chair, um, Honourable Minister and Honourable Members. Um, as Mumbuyo um, mentioned, I'll um, begin the presentation. So I think the first part of the presentation will focus on the impact of the um, Russia-Ukraine conflicts um, on the economy. And then I'll hand over to my colleague, Alia, who will take a look at um, fuel prices and the associated levies. Um, if we could move to the first slide. Um, so, um, I mean, I think the important thing for us to take note of is at the time of um, budget, which was um, uh, uh, tabled a, a few weeks ago, um, a lot has happened um, with respect to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, and the important question is obviously what does this mean for, for the impact um, on the economy and the overall outlook? Um, I think the three main channels um, that we've identified in, in our prelim work um, that the conflict could affect South Africa would largely be um, around its impacts through the real economy, um, financial markets and investments. Um, also, just taking stock of how previous assessments um, of, of similar tensions um, have impacted the, the South African economy um, or associated geopolitical shocks, um, specifically originating in Russia and Ukraine. We see some of a, somewhat of a disconnect between its impact on South Africa. Um, so obviously shocks that originate um, in Russia or Ukraine, um, South Africa seems somewhat insulated. Um, alternatively, given the fact that South Africa, Russia and Ukraine are all emerging markets, um, we do notice that when we all experience similar global shocks, um, for example, such as the global financial crisis, we might respond in a similar way. So I think that's a very important distinction in, in, in trying to isolate what the potential impact might be on the South African economy. I think the final point on this slide, which is important to, to highlight, is the idea that um, the severity of the impact um, is, is likely to be determined by um, uh, sort of three factors. One, the duration of the conflict. Um, second, its impact on global supply chains. And um, thirdly, its, its impact on financial market conditions and the associated environments. And moving to the next slide, um, 
So the charts on the left basically just um, highlight some of the adjustments that we've seen um, uh, pre-conflict, um, or we could sort of say at the time of, of budgets in an environment where this um, had not intensified. Um, specifically, the, the first panel in that chart shows the impact on the oil prices. Um, and, and these are basically um, oil price futures that are um, sourced um, and we can obviously see that there is a, an immediate um, uh, jump from from pre uh, conflict um, uh, pre conflict environments. The the middle panel shows maize price futures, which have also shown an, an uptick. And then um, finally, in the third part of the panel of the chart, it highlights the export commodity prices, um, as we've also seen quite a, a rally in, in commodity prices. So generally, um, the, the tensions uh, posing um, upside surprises or upside risks to, um, to these uh, commodity price futures, um, the oil price and, and maize uh, prices. But maybe just to get into the in, into the main point. So, with respect to Russia and Ukraine, we know that they are a, a significant proportion of global maize and wheat production. Um, together, they account for about thirty uh, percent of global wheat exports, um, of which South Africa consumes about three point four million tons annually of wheat, um, and sources about half of this from from imports. Um, so the impact that we might see is with respect to um, local wheat prices, um, as generally these tend to trade towards um, import parity pricing. Um, in other words, any impact that we see on the on the overall import price um, might have some implication on 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 wheat prices. The the second element is the export commodity prices, um, which have been trending um, significantly higher compared to before the conflict. Um, specifically, if we look at gold, it surged back at the back of its safe haven, safe haven um, asset status. Um, so obviously during times of uncertainty, conflict, et cetera, um, there is a, a push to buy gold um, as, a, as a store of, um, uh, of, of certainty um, during uncertain times. Um, and this has reached its highest level in, in more than a year. Um, on the other hand, coal and iron ore prices have benefited from from higher demand um, as importers are refraining from um, importing um, uh, mineral source from Russia. And then also um, uh, PGM prices have been supported by um, supply concerns as a result of the ongoing war. So I think the overall impact for South Africa is generally um, higher export commodity prices, um, which does provide some support to the South African external accounts um uh, specifically on the on the export side um but what we have to take stock of is how this is then offset from um uh, impacts to potential foreign demand um as well as rising import prices and i think as as has already been alluded to in the previous um presentation is the impact that um the the rising um oil uh, prices might have on um, imports inflation and ultimately on domestic inflation. So we've seen um, oil prices um, uh, rising significantly over the over the past few weeks. Um, and as the uncertainty about um, the, the the tensions persist, um, this poses some risks about um, further sparks. Um, 
In addition, the rise in oil prices and um, any weakening of the rand against the dollar would ultimately add pressure to, to overall fuel prices. Um, so I think that's the one aspect with respect to the oil price. The second element then is some of the impacts that um, this would pose with respect to food inflation from um, uh, rising fuel prices, um, which obviously then lead to, to um, added input costs um, into various production processes. And the second element would then be the impact of these rising wheat um, import prices that's alluded to um, in, the, uh, in the beginning uh, section of this slide. Um, moving on to the next um, slide, we, we see that um, another element of uncertainty or risk that's, that might be posed is um, what this means in, in financial markets. Um, so again, the chart on the left basically unpacks um, uh, some emerging markets um, indicators. So in the first panel, we've got some currencies. Um, in all of these charts, South Africa is the, um, is the solid um, bold black line. Um, and then we've got uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, Russia being the, the dotted line. So from a currency perspective, we've seen um, a very large depreciation um, in the Russian currency. Um, in, in equities, we've seen um, a, a, a complete um, a downward trend there in the, in, in, on, on Russian equities. Um, but obviously, on, on the South African front, um, the, the, the JSE um, remaining quite um, resilient. And I think that has to do partly with um, a wide divergence in performances. So um, ultimately, mining stocks, especially the gold miners um, and other commodity pro producers such as Sassel, um, have lifted the um, overall average um, on, on the JSE, um, while there have been some companies which have significant exposure to Russia that have seen um, sharp declines. So we've kind of got um, you know, movements in, in different directions with respect to, to South African equities. And, and then the final panel on the chart basically highlights the, the risk premium. So we can obviously see um, as a measure of, of, of sovereign risk, um, the, the tensions are, are not voting well at all for, for Russia and Ukraine from, from that perspective. So with respect to the financial markets, this uncertainty would, would impact financial markets in one of two ways, um, through higher risk aversion, which we see reflected in the risk premium, um, as well as higher global inflation prospects. Um, uh, in addition, um, these tighter financial conditions um, and reduced capital flows to emerging markets um, would have some, some implication um, on, on, on emerging markets as, as well as South Africa. Um, at this stage, we haven't seen the full extent reflecting in, um, on the RAND, um, only depreciating by um, about 1.3% in the wake of tensions. Um, moving to the next slide, um, we then sort of take a look at just some of the exposure of um, South African um, firms. Um, so, I mean, the, the links between South Africa and, and Russia since um, uh, 2014 um, reflects about six notable companies that have invested in South Africa, um, representing about 2.1 billion um, in investments in the economy um, and estimated to create about uh, just over 1,600 direct jobs. 
these investments are generally in, in entities dealing um, in fertilizer production, financial services, railway, um, rolling stock and steel manufacturing. Um, and so we anticipate any sanctions imposed on Russian companies um, could have some implication on the domestic operations of such companies. Um, and obviously that could put um, jobs at risk depending on the nature of the sanctions and its, um, it, its wider consequences. Um, on the flip side, we know the likes of Barlow World, Mondi Process, which is a process which is a subsidiary of NASPERS and AB InBev, um, although they're based in Belgium, um, all uh, have, have significant um, uh, SA ownership and any implications with respect to sanctions um, in Russia may um, be felt by um, these large firms. Um, ultimately, the sort of stock of um, exposure, South Africa has about um, uh, 2 billion of um, assets in, in, in um, between South Africa and Russia and liabilities of about 195 million as of the end of 2020. Um, and then just moving to the final slide of this first section um, is basically then just putting forward um, a, a few scenarios of the possible impacts that the escalation in oil prices could have um, on, on consumer prices. Um, so as mentioned earlier in the presentation, based on the oil price future curves, um, we've seen the, the price of oil for um, 2022 um, increasing by just over 19% relative to what was put forward at the time of the, the budget review um, earlier this year. Um, it, obviously, for us to be able to take a very definitive view on, on what this impact um, would be on the economy and what risks it poses um, from an inflationary perspective, um, we would obviously need to, to, to take um, a, a more detailed um, uh, stock of some of these developments, um, which would, we would be embarking on um, in, in the next few weeks um, with our, our next quarterly forecast process. Um, however, based, making a, a few um, prelim assumptions, we thought it would be prudent just to understand um, what the, the rising oil price might mean. Um, for for inflation and and and, and petrol prices um, but as as mentioned this is very prelim work and there is a lot more that needs to be done to to be able to make a more definitive um, uh, view on this so um, ultimately um, as mentioned the severity of the impacts um, is largely dependent on how long the conflict endures as well as its um, impact on global supply chains um, so basically the table above then just looks at um, the current oil prices price futures, which is about 19-20% um, above what was put forward at the time of the budget review, and then just looking at scenarios to say that if prices increased by 30, 40, or 50% increments, what this might mean for um, a, a litre of, um, of, of, of fuel, um, and what those implications might mean for, for head-down inflation. So ultimately, the analysis um, presents these scenarios and shows that the implication of increased um, oil prices under these very specific assumptions suggest consumers could pay anywhere between um, one rand and three rand more for a litre of petrol. Um, so the, the rising oil prices do continue to place pressure um, on, on the price of um, fuel and further eroding household disposable income through increased transport costs, as mentioned in the previous presentation. 
And then we also have to take stock of some of the secondary impacts, impacts that this might have on the economy, such as upside risks to food inflation um, as a consequence of the higher fuel prices, as well as the increasing wheat prices that we mentioned previously. Um, I'll stop there and then hand over to my colleague, Adia. Um, morning, Chair, um, Honourable Minister and Committee members. I'm not sure if you can see me. Um, yes, we can. I can see you, and I'm sure... Okay. I can't see it on my screen. Um, okay. Leo, would you, you just go to the previous slide, please? The previous um, the slide on mitigating measures for fuel price increases. I think you'll need to start here, Alia. Oh, are we missing a slide? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Um, I'll just talk through the, the, the mitigating measures. So, um, obviously, um, my colleague has mentioned the, the background in terms of um, the that the petrol price has been uh, trending upwards um, due to the recovery in demand. There's been supply restrictions and... Um, surging gas prices. And um, uh, we've also gone through the impact um, in that um, the fuel price drives much of the variation in inflation. Um, it makes up one-fifth of administrative prices and leads to erosion of disposable income, as mentioned, as well as spillovers to the rest of the economy. So we seem to be missing a slide here, but we've got a... But, um, it would be in what was circulated. Um, so, so what we what we've done is identified a number of the mitigating measures for fuel prices. Um, so, with the recent, I mean, so the recent prices have largely been driven by the international oil price. And and what we've done is just thought of short term and medium term interventions that can be explored um, to efficiently determine the levels of the components of the fuel price. So, in the short term. Um, in the budget um, for the 2022-23 financial year, uh, the Minister of Finance announced that there would be no change to the RAF levy and the general fuel levy, as you all are aware. And um, this intervention was implemented to provide immediate relief to the impact of price increases and will result in a reduction of uh, revenue of $3.5 billion. Um, and in 2018, another short-term measure, um, the DMRE undertook a review of the BFP components of the petrol price and the proposed recommendation. So the BFP um, is, for, uh, I'm sure most of you are well-versed in this, but for those that aren't, it's a price that the importer um, of petrol pays an international refinery, as well as insurance. Um, and this is designed to compensate the manufacturer, as we heard earlier. So, um, if, so those proposed recommendations um, can um, lead to a reduction of, of three to 18 cents um, per liter, which is not too substantial, um, but it's important to correct the baseline of the fuel price. Um, then in the medium term, so as announced um, in the budget, um, there would be a review of all the aspects of the fuel price um, and that would be considered by the DMRE and the National Treasury. 
So adjustments to the RAF levy are dependent on the reintroduction to Parliament and the implementation of the Cabinet-approved um, RAPS policy. So that's the Road Accident Benefit Scheme policy. And that was approved in 2011. Um, you can just, I'm going to go through these slides in detail in a moment. I'm just going through, I'm just summarizing the, the interventions. Um, the next one would be in addition to um, reviewing the, the fuel, the, in, in addition to reviewing the BFP, it would be important to review the regulated margins associated with the fuel price. So that would be the wholesale, secondary, um, storage, uh, retail margins. And these have, been, um, these have been designed to compensate the owner of infrastructure. So the changes to the, um, to the, to the margins uh, research has shown that it could reduce the petrol price by around 85 cents per litre. Um, and then lastly, uh, consideration should be given to a price cap. And this was previously considered by the DMRE. And obviously, in determining that price cap, the price cap, we need to think about the methodology behind that, um, whether it will introduce competition, price competition in the market, and, the, at the, and that the impact of the industry is well understood. Um, I'm going to go through some of these elements in a bit more detail in these slides that follow um, to discuss some of the rationale of those um, proposed amendments. And I think what's important when we think about price regulation is we need to think about what is the underlying price based on, uh, whether it's an asset base or um, um, uh, storage costs or um, uh, freight costs, those need to be correct. And uh, secondly, um, we need to think about um, what we're trying to achieve with the regulation. So in terms of, so I've, I've gone through them quickly, but I'll just go through them in a bit more detail now. So in terms of the BFP, um, the department recognized that there were concerns with some assumptions in the methodology um, and for instance, being an import parity methodology, the, the DMRE acknowledged in their documentation that the total amount of imported product versus the total products manufactured locally is not factored into the pricing formula to determine the prices, which means that the price is not reflecting the, con the, the country's transition to being a net importer. Um, so the proposed changes to the methodology will cover um, aspects of updating the composition of reference markets for our imports, the removal of the premium to freight costs and um, and uh, refining assumptions to introduce more efficiencies. Um, and as I mentioned, the full list of changes is estimated to be around 18 cents uh, per liter. And the DMRE has indicated that changes to reference markets and the premium on freight will reduce the price by approximately three cents per liter. Um, next slide, please. So in terms of the RAS methodology, um, so just to say from the outset that this, um, what I'm presenting here is just based on publicly available information and some um, work that we had seen on the, on the methodology, but obviously the, the department would understand this better. Um, so it's, it's obviously coming from a place of some ignorance. Um, 
but research was basically uh, done through the SA Tide program, and it showed that there are various area, various um, components of the methodology that can be, um, that should be reviewed. So the one would be the appropriate weighted average cost of capital, and it suggested that the, the, the retail margins could be inflated um, if we are not using the appropriate um, WAC. Um, then there's the benchmark for operating costs and service stations. And the idea is that um, the asset base for service stations, as well as operating costs are not regularly revised and they should be done, they should be done. Um, then there was concern around consistency in real versus nominal values um, in, in some of the methodology. Um, then there was a need to assess um, the, uh, the requirement for entrepreneurial compensation, uh, which pr provides compensation over and above the WAC. And there was an issue around the small stock premium. So some of, so, so this research went further and, and it looked at what happens to, what is the impact on GDP if you take into account some of these regulatory amendments? So if you take into account the regulatory amendments on the BFP, as well as the, um, as well as the RAS methodology, the petrol price could be reduced by 100 and almost 104 cents, and this could increase GDP by 0.67 percentage points by 2028. And that research is publicly available for anyone to go and look at it. Next slide, please. Okay, so um, on um, taxes and levies, um, Treasury, uh, the, the, the levies that tre Treasury regulates make up just around 30% of the price. And um, they have obviously been above inflation fuel taxes, which have contributed to the substantial rise in, in, in price, in the fuel price. Um, it's well known that the general fuel levy plays an important role in supporting the fiscus and the RAF levy is earmarked to the road accident fund. So, um, a reduction in the in the level of the fuel levy will have implications for the fiscus and any lost re revenue, as discussed um, earlier in the previous presentation, will have to be recovered through alternative sources. Um, prioritizing the RAB's policy um, and benefit limitations of the road accident fund are important reforms and should be reconsidered by the Department of Transport as well as the Portfolio Committee of Finance. Um, and further discussions are required there. Um, the National Treasury is also considering reviewing the RAF levy as changes in the operational model of the fund are expected to improve their cash position by 2024-2025. Another thing that is not on the slide, but we have discussed it, is looking at the demand side management levy and whether that is necessary and that could be removed. Um, thanks, next slide. Right, so um, just to conclude, um, regular reviews of prices and their under underlying methodologies help policymakers understand inefficiencies in pricing models and the additional costs imposed on society. Um, and a comprehensive review of the fuel price, as discussed in terms of the spillover effects of the fuel price, could, have, could significantly reduce the, the, the costs imposed on the economy, and it's important to, to get the benchmark price right. Um, and, and, and have the appropriate regulation and the appropriate um, methodologies and um, um, asset base uh, um, and costs in, included in the, in the price. 
So we basically, just to summarize, we mentioned three or four possible elements. So the, the implementing the DMRE proposed recommendations of their BFP review in 2018, um, could have a once of a small, a very small once of reduction in the petrol price. Then the, looking at the RAS methodology will require further consideration and engagement with the DMRE, and we are engaging on this. We've had um, internal meetings to discuss this, and I think there's common ground, um, common understanding that this needs to be revised. Um, Treasury is considering revising the left, uh, the, the RAF levy um, and proposals of which initially came through the, the RABS bill. Um, and, and further rate adjustments could be implemented. And finally, consideration should be given to the introduction of price caps, which must be informed by understanding the full costs and benefits to ensure um, regulatory effectiveness. Thanks. Thank you, Chair. That concludes the inputs from the National Treasury side. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, National Treasury. Uh, then uh, can I check with uh, CSIR, is the DM uh, present? If he is not, the one who leads the delegation can come in. Now, thank you very much, Chairperson, and good morning to, to, to yourself and honorable members of the, of the committee. My name is Tulan Zamin, I'm the CEO of the CSIR. I'm joined by four, three other colleagues from the CSIR, Dr. Rachel Chikwamba, Dr. Clinton Carter-Brown, and Dr. Mateta Makonyan. Uh, we will be presenting technology options that the country ought to consider to try and manage the, the cost of energy in the country. Um, so without any further ado, I'd like to then hand over to Dr. Carter Brown and Dr. Makunyane will be uh, delivering the CSR presentation to the to the committee. Thank you, Chair. Please quiet. Yes, uh, thank you, Dr. Lamini. Just to confirm that you can hear me. Yes, I, I, we can hear you and we can see. Thank you. Thank you. And then good morning, colleagues. And thanks again for the opportunity to, to brief you on this very important discussion. Um, I will be doing some of the presentation along with my colleague, Dr. Ateta. Um, so in terms of the, the overview, I think we, we're going to briefly touch on the overview of the CSR and I think our mandate and, and why I think it's very important that we as a science council are being engaged on these very important discussions today. Um, we'll start with the key takeaways. What are the key messages that we'd like to leave you with? Um, we'll give a bit of context around the broader South African energy system and the role of liquid fuels in that. Uh, we will then share with you some of the, the research that we've done in transportation system impacts um, and some of the implications then in terms of increasing fuel prices on transportation and, and some of the opportunities that we as a country have in terms of efficiency and economability um, to reduce the impacts 
quite devastating impacts um, of fuel price increases on average South Africa. Uh, we'll talk about liquid fuels and electricity generation, specifically the, the constrained um, power generation system and how much diesel we are using and the opportunities there to reduce liquid fuel volumes in power generation. We'll talk to liquid fuels and mining, some of the early mover opportunities that we're seeing in that space. Um, and then very importantly, some of the alternatives to the traditional liquid fuel technologies of importing um, fossil fuels and, and the, the huge opportunity that South Africa has to actually leapfrog some of those technologies and to develop um, new sustainable, cost-effective, uh, synthetic, uh, renewable-based fuels um, for both the lo local and international market. Um, some of our, our R&D that we're doing in that space, and then again, just concluding with the key takeaways. So in terms of an overview then of the CSIR, um, I think our mandate really talks to, and we, we really appreciate and welcome the opportunity to brief the Portfolio Committee. You know, as, as the largest science council on the continent, and certainly in South Africa, um, that is multidisciplinary, um, there to, to partner with industry um, to do the scientific development uh, with the private and public sectors to improve the quality of lives of people of the Republic. So that really talks to many of the multi-faceted challenges um, that the energy system um, implications, in particular liquid fuel pricing, um, has for the Republic. Our strategic objectives, really there to do the research, to do that in collaboration with industry, um, to drive the socioeconomic trans transformation um, and to support the capital state. So it's so, so important that we are then contributing um, to this very important discussion today to build the transform the human capital and to do that in a cost-effective and sustainable manner. And, and I think what, what really positions the CSIR as a, as a thought leader to contribute today is, is that the energy and the liquid fuels cuts across many different elements of our economy, um, from food and agriculture to chemicals, health, manufacturing, mining, defense, smart mobility and transportation, um, and of course, energy. So, so the CSIR, you know, having been structured in, in nine different um, operating clusters um, essentially well positioned to contribute today. So in terms of then starting with the, the key takeaways of, of, of our really key messages that we'd like you to, to be left with today. Um, firstly, in terms of mining operations, it's consuming 2.2 billion liters of liquid fuels per annum in South Africa. Um, and the large multinational mining houses already moving fast in this space. They are pioneering the decarbonization of mining operations through renewable energy, batteries, and hydrogen. Um, and we as a country need to support the junior miners, the local medium and, and local large miners, and OEMs to achieve their decarbonization targets and to localize the value chain so that South African mining remains relevant um, and we can be remain technical leaders um, not just in terms of mining operations, but also the decarbonization of mining operations. Within transportation, um, South Africa consuming 24 billion liters, um, by far the largest sector in terms of induced consumption of liquid fuels in South Africa. And, and, and there, to support some of the earlier comments, we really need to support the structural shifts 
in the transportation sector and specifically eco-mobility to improve the efficiency um, and social cohesion um, to reduce the volumes of liquid fuels and related price shocks. So it's, it's not just about reducing the price or containing the price of liquid fuels or finding alternatives. It's also about being more efficient um, in terms of how we are implementing our transportation systems, the role of, role of, of, of rail versus road um, and the role of public transportation are key elements in terms of that. Um, within within our, our power system, our electricity system, um, ESCOM used just under a billion liters of diesel last year for peak of power production um, because the power system is constrained. We, we've used four times more diesel in power generation than, than we should have had the system not been so constrained. And, and that has cost us as an economy and as electricity users an additional 10.8 billion in operating costs last year alone. Um, and we need to, to critically, very quickly, install additional power generation capacity so that we're not using expensive diesel-based pico plants um, to, to, to minimize or mitigate the impacts of load shedding. Bioenergy in South Africa, unfortunately, it has a role to play. So I'm saying fortunately it has a role to play, but unfortunately, relatively limited potential, around about 5% of our liquid fuels can realistically um, be, be um, produced from bioenergy or biomass feedstocks um, because we're relatively constrained in terms of rainfall and, and the natural nexus around uh, food security and water. We do have a major opportunity to transform some of our, our legacy domestic coal and gas to liquid plants and through the operations of the likes of Sassol and Petro SA um, to repurpose them um, to, to actually utilize renewable energy and biomass feedstocks um, then to create sustainable um, biomass and uh, renewable energy based synthetic liquid fuels. And, and that's really being driven within a major global decarbonization drive. I think something that we'll see acceleration thereof, given the global dynamics with, with Russia and Ukraine, um, that is simply, and we're seeing it already in terms of European countries and markets seeking to, to accelerate their decarbonization from liquid fuels um, and looking to regions such as South Africa, where because of our land mass, land mass our excellent wind, um, and year-round sunshine, uh, we're well positioned to be exporters of power-to-x products at competitive prices into a global growing export market that will be prepared to pay a premium for green products. Um, and we can use these international global market opportunities to create the infrastructure then that also supports the development of our local markets in South Africa. So big opportunities in this space, but it's new thinking and it's new technologies. Um, this has been well captured in the Department of Science and Innovations uh, Hydrogen Society Roadmap um, that was approved by Cabinet and has now been officially released. Um, and as aligned with the Hydrogen Society Roadmap, there are a range of local market technologies and opportunities that have very specific um, relevance for today's discussion. Uh, within mining, uh, there is already an, an accelerated transition underway with, with global mining houses taking a very aggressive lead in this space to then implement 
battery and hydrogen technologies in both underground um, and open cast mining operations. There's huge opportunity around battery electric vehicles. We know that we have a, a substantial local motor vehicle industry that needs to transition from internal combustion engines to electric. Um, and with that comes a huge opportunity to move away from liquid fuels um, to domestic-based electricity. Linked to that is the role of hydrogen um, in both uh, electric vehicles for long-haul road transportation, as well as in powering locomotives for rail. And then really very encouraging and real opportunities around sustainable bunker fuels. Uh, that's for maritime shipping. Um, in producing technologies such as ammonia um, to decarbonize shipping. This was a, a growing international imperative. And linked to that as well is the application of sustainable aviation fuels for long-haul aviation. Um, and of course, in all of this, the CSR and d to support this market and technology development um, is underway. Um, but given the challenges that we see and the opportunities, um, it requires support and acceleration for impact. Um, at this point, going to then hand over, um, in terms of, no, I'll just talk about the, sorry, the role of the, or the overview of the South African energy system. Um, it's really just one slide. And to remind ourselves, colleagues, um, on the left is our Sankey drawing, showing all our major sources of different energy, and on the right, the different end classes or sectors within which energy is used. Now, in terms of today's discussion, the really important thing to note is that our petroleum products or liquid fuels have three main sources. We, we import oil, um, either refine that or we import the, the, the refined product itself. Um, but we also, through the operations of Sasol and Petro SA, turn both coal and natural gas into liquid fuels. Um, those petroleum products then flow into the different sectors, such as transportation and agriculture and industrial. Um, and as South Africa, um, we consume about 35 billion litres of liquid fuels. That was in 2019. The majority of that, just over 24 billion litres, is in transportation. So most of our liquid fuel in transportation. So a lot of the, the questions and opportunities then come in terms of how could we start to transform um, the transportation industry to make it more efficient um, and reduce um, the dependency on liquid fuels in transportation? So with that, I'm going to hand over to, to Mateta to then talk us through the transportation system impacts. All right. Uh, thanks, um, Clinton. Um, good morning, uh, Honorable Chair and Honorable Members. Um, uh, the, the transport um, uh, sector um, is uh, largely dependent on uh, petroleum uh, uh, products. Um, it derives uh, about 98% uh, from, from petroleum products. Um, and uh, in terms of splits uh, by mode of transport, um, the road road-based uh, transport are the biggest you know consumer uh, about 80 percent and then the, the the split for others uh, is as shown there but important here um also is that um one cannot uh, look at this without looking at the regulatory space the historical you know regulatory space 
um, the Deregulation Act of 1988 uh, essentially allowed, you know, a situation where you have a, a flood of um, supply for both uh, goods and uh, also, you know, passenger transport. Now, prior to that, uh, there was this 1977 Road Transportation Act, which essentially gave um, um, regulatory authorities at the time to um, control the numbers, the supply. For example, you couldn't, you know, provide or, or supply if uh, it had well, whatever you're doing had uh, a negative, uh, severe negative impact on rail, rail uh, transport. Uh, similarly with, with with passenger transport and what you saw after the 1988 deregulation act is that there was a, a surge in in the supply um of, of road-based you know services um and that's when you you saw the, the minibus taxes also rising so this is also in that context of a, a deregulated you know transport system uh, essentially you can go to the next one so um, here we're just uh, showing that um, if you had to look at who consumes what um, uh, in terms of for, in terms of the sectors uh, in the economy on the left uh, there the bus um, derived from the uh, social accounting matrix um, uh, of the country. So this is relative consumption. So um, households uh, essentially consume a lot of you know, petroleum products. So for every one. Uh, uh, consumption unit uh, at a household level, agriculture would consume just over 0.2. And then uh, the mining of metal ores, you know, for example, would be between 0.1 and 0.2. So this just gives you a, a sense of, you know, how impacted the household as a sector um, uh, is. And then on the right, um, we, we then split uh, at a household level what the the expenditure looks like for transport um so uh, when when a typical household in south africa does spend this is then the split this is from the income and expenditure you know uh, service the important uh, takeaway here uh, is that um uh, fuel uh, is a significant portion of that and and and, and also the passenger transport by road uh, so both of that you know comes to 20 about 48 percent but very important is that um passenger transport by road pa large part of that uh, almost half of that is actually fuel uh, so it's essentially talking about household spending uh, for, for for transport around um you know uh, 38 percent uh, 40 percent uh, thereabout and also very important to note uh, on the 39 percent where household spend on on motor vehicles uh, the buying of motor vehicles we're seeing a trend where um households are you know are, are buying cars at low income uh, level so there is a desperation for mobility uh, so even lower income households are beginning to buy cars and the kind of cars that they, they buy are fairly old, um, less, you know, energy efficient. Uh, so, um, you, you know, wh wh when price increases, they will then impact on lower income households uh, uh, severely, relatively more so. And then um, the next um, illustration is to zoom in. Um, we, we do quite a lot of work um, in terms of surveys. We go out in the field and measure what is happening on the ground. So one of the things that we've done is to look at the cost structures in public transport. So, for example, if a passenger pays um, 
for a a, a fair you know what 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 is the condition of that there's a bit of um noise all right uh, so we, we will do uh, quite a bit of uh, Please uh, mute yourself. Thanks, Jim. Um, um, so, so here we looked at um, the uh, government subsidized bus services. So this is a, a sample. And then on the right is a typical minibus taxi service in you know uh, urban area, this one. Uh, so again, uh, fuel comes out as the um, uh, the biggest you no know, cost driver uh, as a single item. So for minibus taxis, close to uh, as, as close as fifty percent um, of of the operating cost will then be attributed to fuel, and um, for um, um, for a subsidized buses. So this is already subsidized. Uh, so for subsidized buses, um, you know, a quarter or so um, uh, being being fuel. But uh, important here, what we observe in the field is that when, when the prices go up, yes, the first will also go up, but also the operators will then, you know, uh, adopt certain um, operational strategies. You know, for example, instead of operating two or three routes, they then combine those routes into one. And what that means is that uh, the travel times becomes become longer. Uh, so uh, essentially, the quality of service drops, and also something. Uh, what happens is they they, they tend to then um, uh, spend less on maintenance. Uh, again, the, the, the service quality uh, then drops. And um, when when you look at the the amount of um, uh, spent on capital vehicles, um, we often talk about uh, improving the technology, um, electrification of minibus taxis, and so forth. That has been touted. Um, you look at the margins that the industry um, has, uh, they are relatively very small. So what that means is that should you increase the capital you know, uh, expenditure or the, the cost, the, the, the margins will become much, much lower. In fact, they may not be able to recover. So what, what that means is that um, uh, for, for, for the cost to be kept uh, lower, you may need to um, uh, uh, subsidize the, the the capital expenditure. So instead of relying on um, you know uh, operators to go you know procure uh, fairly expensive equipment, you then subsidize them in terms of you know capital expenditure. That may be a way of controlling the costs going forward. So what that does is that the 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 the, the, the vehicles become more fuel efficient. Uh, and then also the the, the, the fares uh, becomes uh, uh, relatively more affordable. And then next one. Um, so we, we like I said, we do quite a lot of um, uh, surveys. Uh, this one was an extensive survey, one of our biggest you know surveys across the country, getting a sense of the elasticities of demand. So essentially, when something changes, what happens in the market? Um, uh, we did, you know, uh, you know, focus groups as well as part of this, you know, program, but then also did some experiments, um, you know, some gaming, um, you know, uh, sort of experiments to just get a sense of what would be the response of the different, you know, um, uh, communities. And, and what we found uh, from this and quantified is that transport, public transport costs um, is, is, uh, is, um, yeah, is, 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 a, is, a, is a determinant, the, the biggest determinant of satisfaction. Um, satisfaction. 
followed by you know the quality of the service and access and, and, and other things. So what that means is that um, uh, should you improve the quality of services, for example, you know in in Cape Town, you know the My City, the in Johannesburg, Riavaya, and you know um, Swane, Ariang, and all that. You should improve these services, but the, the cost rise, the dissatisfaction, you know, will 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 also increase. Um, um, so, so you need to balance, um, uh, make sure that you contain the cost. But then also through these surveys, um, we we try to get to understand how the the, the households cope uh, cope with rising costs and so forth. And what we found, you know, uh, for example, was that when the costs rise. There are a number of things that happen. Um, a, a lot more people, you know, choose to to walk, and we saw it in, in the trends um, from about 2000 to 2019. They choose to walk longer, um, and what that means is that they are exposed to a number of things. They are exposed to, uh, you know, uh, in the road environment, our our infrastructure for for um, pedestrians is relatively you know, poor, um, and that's what happens. Um, uh, that's what you see in the in the statistics. 40% or so of the fatalities are actually pedestrians. Um, and then uh, they, they travel longer. So there are other social impacts uh, that, that result. You know, you know um, um, a, a mother who is, um, ends relatively low would, would travel longer and spend less time with family, and that creates other social problems as well. And then there's less demand also on, on public transport. And what that means is that um, the, the fares also go up. So it's a vicious cycle. Um, and then also, um, earlier it was mentioned, the, the price of goods um, also uh, tend to go up. There's less demand. And then uh, that results in you know, job losses in some sectors. But then also job seekers, uh, you know, stop looking for work. If you look at the stats, uh, stats as a, you know, people who have been discouraged to look for work. Part of that is because of the of the transport costs uh, going forward. But the important thing is that we have that information. We understand those things. We have modeled it. And it, well, when it comes to decision, decision support tools, we can then create you know, tools that say, you know, enable you to say, what if we did this? What if we did that? So th th those tools are available for such analysis. And then lastly, um, uh, the next slide, we, we also have conversations. We've had conversations, uh, part of our programs, we've had conversations with uh, local government officials. So there's a fairly you know, uh, comprehensive document that uh, uh, you know, essentially documents the, the responses from the, the cities mainly on what they want to do um, uh, given resources, this is what they want to do. Um, uh, so here we've summarized some of the important things that uh, they, 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 they have mentioned, uh, some of them structural, uh, some of them to you know, shift you know, um, uh, how you know, travel uh, takes place, and then also the technology. Uh, well, I'll touch on one or two of these things. Uh, things like the location of um, government housing programs near rail stations. You see something uh, as very important. The, the South African Cities Network has been pushing this uh, over the years, but there hasn't been much uh, happening. If you look at the infrastructure around rail stations, uh, they, they, they are really under, the infrastructure is really underutilized, or the land is grossly underutilized. Uh, a train, for example, uh, can take about 80 passengers per kilometer in terms of productivity. A typical bus, about four passengers per kilometer. A taxi, about, you know, at best, about one passenger per kilometer. So a, a rail, a rail um, um, a service can be a shock absorber. 
so what you want to do is to use that land more productively. We, we note, for example, the human settlements, the 136 um, priority projects that um, have been gazetted. So you may want to then say, let's direct these things around this high capacity you know, public transport infrastructure. And, and a lot of that land actually is state-owned land. And instead of, in fact, you know, demolishing, expropriating, you can actually use the, the, the air rights, the, 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 the air rights to, to make sure that you, um, you, you provide opportunities, settlement opportunities. Those things can be done. You know, conversations with the um, housing development agency, sometimes they say that the geology is, you know, is a challenge and so forth. But the CSR has got, you know, capabilities to look at how we can, um, how we can improve the geology, the in situ conditions, um, such that you can build structures, fairly large structures. So it shouldn't be a big challenge, you know, going forward. And then um, the public transport subsidy policy. Um, the subsidy policy as we have now is essentially financing um, the apartheid spatial planning. It continues to do that. So there is a policy, draft policy on board uh, well, well, um, uh, that the Department of Transport has that begins to say uh, that, that, that actually can un unlock the, the, the structural you know, impediments. So the, the cities are saying we should go ahead to implement to implementing that. And then, the, of course, there are other things that I mentioned about you know, capital subsidy for uh, energy efficient you know, public transport vehicles um, uh, going forward. So, so there are some things that uh, can be done in the short term. The, the cities have indicated but they need that enabling environment. Some of it is regulatory kind of environment. Some of it is just project management, you know, to, 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 to get things going. The quickest way of uh, doing things is to just start. Um, uh, and I think we need to start with a lot of these things, you know, going forward. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I'm then going to continue um, and uh, delving further then into the specifics of electricity generation um, and the implications of our constrained power system on liquid fuel usage and costs. Um, this is the latest update in terms of uh, load shedding in South Africa over the last decade plus. You can see how it's been ramping up since 2019, 2020, 2021 last year, the, the largest amount of, of load shedding to date. Um, and unfortunately, as, as many of us have been experiencing in the last two weeks, um, 2022 has not started well. So this is just reaffirming that we, we really do have an energy crisis. We're not, we are not um, balancing supply and demand. Um, and this is of course having a very constraining impact on the economy and economic growth um, and it requires urgent resolution um, and, and one of the the uh, levers that the system operator have in terms of maintaining supply and demand balance are what we call the, the diesel peakers the open cycle gas turbines uh, we have them at Ankelik, Rewika, Avon and Devisa um, and on the bottom left hand side is the amount of diesel that we've been burning in those peaker plants, uh, you can see since 2018 and how that has steadily ramped up. And last year, we burned 966 million liters of diesel at those uh, peaker, peaker stations. Um, and if we just look at the cost of that um, and how that would scale 
with different fuel prices. Um, at 15 rand a litre, it's a, it's a cost of 14.5 billion. Um, but if diesel, for example, increases to 25 rand a litre, that is a cost to the economy and the South African consumers of 24 billion rand, um, based on the amount of diesel we used last year alone. Now, diesel-based OCGTs um, typically should be used about 3% of the time. Um, that would be the norm in a reasonably balanced supply system that has sufficient capacity and energy. Um, and we, as per the plot, are using our OCGT peak is substantially higher than that. Last year, we used them uh, at a 12% capacity factor. Um, and in fact, we would have used them even more um, were it not for the fact that um, we are constrained around fuel logistics on how often and how hard we can run those peaker plants. Um, year to date is 9%. Um, so if we then start to, to understand, well, what is the cost of that? Well, at 15 Rand a litre of diesel, it's about 4 Rand 50 a kilowatt hour, um, just the fuel cost of running a, a diesel-fired peaker. Um, and because of our constrained power system, we're using in the region of four times more diesel um, than if the system was balanced. So last year alone, that was 723 million liters of diesel that we burnt um, because of a constrained power system. Uh, at 15 rand a liter, um, that's costing us around about 10.8 billion. So more than 10 billion a year premium um, because of a constrained power system. Uh, and when we start to look at that in terms of ESCOM's overall operating expenditure, which was 196 billion, um, that translates to 7.5% of ESCOM's operating expenditure. Um, it's a very, very substantial additional cost. Um, and at 20 rand a litre, that cost premium increases from 10.8 billion um, to 15 billion. So, so certainly a very significant cost. Um, and of course, at a time, when consumers are facing increasing price pressure and cost pressure in terms of electricity price increases, um, that is an avoidable cost um, that really needs to be addressed in the immediate. So, so what can we do then in terms of urgent actions? Um, and this is as per previously published CSR work, we did some fairly seminal work in 2020, uh, predicting that the constraints in the power system would continue and and raising a number of, of urgent levers in terms of, of the things that need to be done. Um, and this is really a, a repeat largely of that. Uh, we need to improve the operational performance of the existing ESCOM fleet, specifically the coal-fired power stations. We need to get the energy availability factor up by doing the right planned maintenance, uh, which ESCOM is now seemingly giving attention to, but, but that is mission critical. We need the mega projects, Madupi and Kusili, to actually operate as, as planned and, and as paid for to develop the, deliver the planned capacity. And then we have the highly acclaimed Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Program that South Africa pioneered. We have to date procured 7,300 megawatts, um, and that program really needs to be accelerated. Uh, we should consider doubling the megawatt allocations in the short term. For example, in the next bid window, bid window six, to procure at least 3,200 megawatts of wind and 2,000 megawatts of PV. And in order to do that, one of the things that could be done is, is to increase the project size, for example. 
the department also run recently the, the risk mitigation IPP projects. So we need to get to financial close. We need that capacity to come online and to come online quickly. Or some of those projects will not be able to reach financial close for various reasons. We need alternatives to be accelerated to provide that capacity. And whilst we're doing that, we need to promote customers to procure their own generation capacity, such as embedded generation. Um, the recent announcements around increasing the licensing exemption lim limit to 100 megawatts, very well received. But colleagues, the processes um, to actually get such a project installed, commissioned and operating remain very bureaucratic and slow and needs attention. Now, it's not about renewable energy. Right now, if we could get well-priced nuclear, for example, very quickly onto the grid, we should do so, Grand Inga. Um, the reality is that we need capacity and energy to get onto the system as soon as possible. And renewable energy, because of its modular nature, um, is very attractive in terms of short-term or reduced timeframes. Um, and we've seen through the department's latest bid window, bid window five, that was that announced in October last year, um, increasing price reductions. We now have average prices of renewable energy at less than 50 cents a kilowatt hour. So compared to burning diesel at between four rand and six rand a kilowatt hour, that is an absolute no regret maneuver option for South Africa to implement those projects quickly. Um, also creating local jobs and opportunities. We import the majority of our liquid fuels. We are not creating many jobs for local South Africans um, through importing liquid fuels. So we have an opportunity to transform the economy, create new jobs, local manufacturing and industry, whilst also saving money. So that, that requires, this is a major opportunity for South Africa. We then start to, to unpack liquid fuels and mining. Um, so of the 35 billion litres um, a year in 2019, 2.2 .2 billion litres um, was used um, in mining operations, the bulk of that being diesel. So we use diesel quite extensively um, in mining vehicles and operations. Um, and if we look at what that means in terms of the cost for South African mining um, and how increasing liquid fuel pricing um, contributes to, to the margins um, in, in terms of operating costs for South African mining operations. We can see that the 20 rand a litre, it's about a 35 billion rand a year cost, um, which is in the region of 12.3% um, of our total um, operating costs in mining. Um, at 25 rand a litre, that increases quite significantly. So, it is substantial um, and it is going to have an impact. And, and of course, this isn't looking at the knock-on effect of all the other um, prices of various commodities and services linked to the price of liquid fuels that the mining sector also draws on. Um, and, and this is going to have a high impact on the profitability and the viability of the major, medium-sized and junior miners in South Africa. So the mining industry is a significant consumer of energy and an emitter of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and globally, um, we're seeing a huge shift in terms of many of the, the majors, um, very clear um, plans in terms of decarbonization of their operations. Um, some indicate to be carbon neutral by 2040, others 2050. The table there is summarizing some of the, the local players 
um, and their position. So there is there is a lot of attention being given to this um, by the global majors in mining. And, and they're doing that. Um, it's going to have a positive impact on operating costs. They can reduce the cost of energy using things like renewable energy. As I mentioned, at 50 cents a kilowatt hour, renewable energy is very cost attractive for mining operations. It's going to have a positive impact on share price. It's going to reduce their cost of capital, being able to access things such as bonds. For license to operate, we are seeing many jurisdictions that are placing very firm uh, restrictions on things such as open cost mining, environmental approvals, energy, uh, in order to be able to operate um, mining operations. So, then a key driver for greenfield projects, and of course, to provide a healthier and safer work environment for people in the mining sector. So globally, there are many jurisdictions um, that are, are starting to drive uh, the net um, agenda uh, within uh, global mining. So, so what does it mean then for the for the CSR um, and, and, and the work we are looking to do? Well, certainly in terms of the electrification of mining operations through batteries, batteries, for example, on uh, underground locomotives. Um, we are working with local South African mining truck and equipment manufacturers, OEMs, to accelerate the battery technology integration and adoption, um, and looking to then develop the fit-for-purpose technology for South African mining operations. Um, and likewise, we're working with the OEMs in terms of the opportunities in hydrogen. Um, and how do we actually put hydrogen power through, through fuel cells um, in South African mining operation locomotives. We're seeing the major um, projects and developments being by the likes of Anglo. Um, we need to support our local manufacturers to be able to remain relevant um, and be able to supply the local and export mining um, manufacturing value chain. So if we look at just who they are, not going into any of the detail, but you can see that some South African um, OEMs are already looking at the lithium-ion battery space and are eyeing the hydrogen space. Um, we need to get this green dot across the board. We need to support these OEMs to be able to supply the mining technology of the future, which will be battery electric and green hydrogen. So if we start to then unpack and look at what are the alternatives for liquid fuels, um, it's really four key things that we need to focus on. Um, as touched on earlier, we need to improve the efficiency. We need to use less liquid fuels. We need to make our transport systems where we use the majority of liquid fuels more efficient. Um, and for example, systems like our power system, we sh shouldn't be using liquid fuels unnecessarily. So, so with that comes all the opportunities on electrification of transport, moving road to rail, and eco-mobility. Um, touch on biomass and biofuels and the opportunities for blending and uh, transitions there. The opportunities around the direct electrification of transportation through battery electric vehicles and using hydrogen and transportation. And then finally, what we call power to X. Um, and this is using electricity uh, with carbon sources to create sustainable clean fuels um, that are sourced from renewable energy. And this is where globally there is a huge shift in the market developing for that, as will be further accelerated through geopolitics. Yeah. We look at what biomass um, and biofuels and the opportunities there. Okay. We have 
Thank you. So bioenergy, um, unfortunately, has relatively limited potential. I mean, it is something that we are considering and need to consider. Um, but because of our rainfall constraints, um, some natural competition in terms of food security and variability of supply, um, it really is relegated to niche applications for cultivated energy crops. Um, we can blend biofuels um, typically at about 5 to 10% of fuel volumes without having to do any modifications to vehicles. Um, but despite biofuel blending targets, it, it really has been slow, mainly due to not being cost competitive. But when we start to see present day USD based um, oil prices, biofuels are certainly more feasible. Um, but when we realistically look at the magnitude of crops that we could cultivate in South Africa sustainably, roughly only approximately 5% of our current diesel consumption can realistically be sourced from biomass. So it is something to consider, but it's not going to be the answer in terms of large-scale local domestic um, biofuel production from biomass. We, we have quite a lot of opportunity in, in the biomass to liquid space. So at the moment, Sasol and Petro SA, um, they use coal and gas as feedstocks to produce uh, synthetic liquid fuels. We can use rather hydrogen as an input from either, um, uh, preferably not fossil fuel based, and going forward from renewable energy sources. But then very importantly, using the biomass as the carbon sink to then create um, sustainable carbon-based fuels from renewable energy. And there is a growing global market for green diesel, paraffins, and liquid aviation fuels um, that are, are going to, to be able to be traded globally. Yes, they will be more expensive, but when we look at present um, Brent crude oil pricing um, and the technology shifts that we've seen in the technology space, um, it will reach a point where these sustainable fuels will actually become the cheapest option. Um, but at the moment, um, there are subsidies that one can tap into globally um, to support such projects. If we look at the electrification of transportation, um, this is some work that was done by the EFC at UCT. It's not CSIR work. But we thought very, very relevant to note the different scenarios. Um, but without going into the detail, um, there is huge opportunity to shift away from liquid fuels through the application of battery electric vehicles and hydrogen um, in, in the transportation sector. And if we did that on scale, um, by 2050, the total electricity demand would be in the region of about 95 terawatt hours. Um, and we, we compare that with the national forecast, that would be about a 20% increase in the electricity demand. So by usually decarbonizing and shifting um, our liquid fuel transportation sector to domestic-based electricity, um, it will have an impact on electricity generation. So we need to address the capacity constraints there. But it's, it's only 20% maximum. It's, it's not a huge proportion. So definitely something that the electricity system could be expanded to do um, and to reduce that dependency on imported liquid fuels. 
And then power to X, well, what is power to X? So power to X is, is a really growing, huge international market opportunity. It's where we take renewable electricity from things like solar, PV, hydro. Um, we electrolyze water. We can uh, then do desalination at the coast and actually address both a water and an energy and fuel security challenge simultaneously because we'll inherently create new water supply sources through doing this. Um, and then we combine that renewable hydrogen with different carbon sources to then create sustainable clean diesel, petrol, and kerosene. And that fuel then is exactly the same as the, the carbon-based fuels that we've traditionally been used, and it can be used in transport and industry, et cetera. So why is it so prominent? Well, you know, prior to the, the present global dynamic, a lot of it being driven from a global climate change, Paris Agreements, COP26, um, but very importantly, just the, the, the price reductions in renewable-based electricity is starting to make this technology cost-attractive. Um, but very important to notice that you start with direct electrification. Um, creating green hydrogen and synthetic fuels is inherently not very efficient. So the, the preference is to directly electrify that which you can through things such as batteries. Um, and then you use uh, power to X and sustainable fuels in what we call the hard-to-abate sectors, uh, long-haul trucking and buses, um, aviation and shipping. Simply where putting a battery in the ship is simply not feasible. You still need a, a liquid fuel or an ammonia sitting in the ship. So we as South Africa globally well-positioned to supply into this market. We have the landmass, we have the wind and the sun. We also have the technology, much of it patented, through the likes of Sassel, Fischer-Trop processes. So, so we really do have a major opportunity, not just to supply our, our, our international global market, but of course, domestically as well. This then becomes the, the energy system of the future. Um, on the left-hand side, we, we have the symphony of different renewable-based energy sources, wind, PV, hydro, biomass. Um, electricity becomes central to this. So solving the, the restructuring of the debt and financial challenges of ESCOM is mission imperative because we need to shift things such as transportation to electricity. The role of electricity needs to increase. Um, in addition to doing that, we'll be we'll keep producing green hydrogen um, for, for local, domestic, and export market use. Um, and this is well captured in the, in the Department of Science and Innovation Hydrogen Society Roadmap, recently released 70 key actions, and, and it really talks and directly overlaps with some of the perspectives that I've been sharing. Um, big opportunities in terms of decarbonization of heavy-duty transport, energy-intensive industry, um, enhancing the green power sector, manufacturing, creating export markets, and increasing the role of hydrogen. And, and colleagues, this is not just a matter of, of greening or, or CO2 emissions. This is, a, this is a matter of economic imperity um, and that this will become, in the longer term, the cheapest options. And South Africa needs to very aggressively um, become a key player in this space. So what are we then doing as the CSR? It's the final section of my slides um, in terms of R&D in this space. Um, as mentioned earlier, we're working with local South African mining, truck, and equipment manufacturers around accelerating battery technology deployment in mining. 
Um, likewise, in hydrogen fuel cells, we, we have a particular program of work that we're initiating with partners. Uh, we'd like to accelerate that. And of course, with this comes linking in with partners, linking in with funding. Um, so, so this is a, a major area of opportunity for South African mining that the CSR is leading in. Um, we also are doing deep work across a number of areas that requires acceleration. If we want to address um, this dynamic and, and, and transition South Africa for the opportunities in these new technologies, um, we need to do a range of things. Um, Mateta spoke earlier around improving the sustainability um, of transportation systems and the mitigation actions, um, not necessarily energy specific, but that would dramatically or substantially improve energy efficiency and transportation. Um, our work, our focused technology development work, how to X, specifically on batteries, green methanol synthesis, we see specific opportunities for South Africa. And then the national energy system modeling that we've been doing, um, very specifically moving beyond that of just electricity, but looking at the energy sector broadly, with the intent to identify the local and global market opportunities to be able to create and to support bankable projects. We need to actually start to break ground on new infrastructure projects in this space. Um, and with that is then the implementation of the Hydrogen Society Roadmap that I spoke to you earlier. There's, there's, there's very, very good strategic um, foresight in, in that roadmap, but it now requires deep implementation. Um, and then of course the continued R&D around sustainable energy sources. All of this is largely supported by the fact that we have an opportunity to generate low-cost sustainable electricity. So the continued work in that space um, to then support these further market opportunities broadly in energy that requires continued focus by the CSIR. And then the takeaways, we spoke about them earlier. So it's about um, decarbonizing mining and partnering with the juniors, um, the majors and the OEMs to decarbonize. Um, to improve the efficiency in transportation, um, to address our power system constraints so that we're not burning four times the amount of diesel than we need to, um, and that we use diesel for the right applications, um, that we appreciate that there's a role for bioenergy, but it will be limited, uh, that we need to transition the, the, the coal and gas to liquid processes of SASO and Petro SA to biomass and green hydrogen, um, and in doing that, tapping into the, the growing global um, market for clean products where we will be able to export those into and be able to get paid a premium for those products. Um, we need to implement the Hydrogen Society Roadmap. We need to do that through mining, battery electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. And, and of course, we, we really, you know, we do this in, a, in an ecosystem working with partners. Um, and I think this is the opportunity to reach out and say how how do we as a country, not just the CSIR, but really support the innovation in the R&D to unlock these major opportunities in South Africa? We are faced with some deep challenges around um, increasing fuel prices, and it's unlikely to be resolved in the immediate. With this comes the opportunity to leapfrog and to implement new technologies that will take us forward. Uh, thanks very much. Um, Dr. Domini, I don't know if you want to add anything further from your side. Thank you. No, thank you very much, um, Clinton and my title chair. 
that is the CSIR presentation on, on this topic. It was a little bit long, I apologize for that. But we thought let's give you a broader context and perspective on terms of the options that we can consider. Thank you, Chair and members. Thank you very much, CSIR, uh, for your for your for your presentation. I allowed because uh, you are unique in terms of the research work that uh, would have been done, and um, we are also looking for solutions. And I think that is what is critical for for all of us, including um, uh, every concerned South African. Uh, should see this as um, one of the key areas that we, we need to pay very serious attention um, uh, as it impacts to almost every living individual um, in this country. Without any further ado, honorable members, um, uh, I wouldn't want to limit, maybe we may start with the department or if members make deal with questions of clarity, let's deal with those questions of clarity and the state uh, with a reference from which one of the three inputs. But secondly, let's just stick to questions of clarity and comments. Um, with the presentation that has been made, it becomes clear that once we may need to look at the low-hanging fruit, what are the immediate um, issues to do. There is a lot of discussion that we'll have to, to take place. So I will, I will just ask that in as much as we express our views, let's reduce something that seeks to make it a, a discussion for now. Let's get clarity from those or our, our express view specifically on the actual uh, presentation, especially the proposed alternatives where there could be certain shortcomings or we think there is a point to emphasize on. And there is a reason I'm saying that because at times in our discussions, we, instead of dealing with the people who are coming to the committee to preside, we end up uh, making it very difficult for them when we start to, 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 to engage, uh, not even on what they are raising, on what for us, are supposed to agree and or disagree on. Uh, without any further ado, let me check. I see the hand of um, Honorable uh, Melam, Honorable Matogwe, uh, Honorable Volmarans, Honorable Mashaune. In that order, until I come back again, or after it will be Honorable Kula. Can I get uh, Honorable Mailem, Honorable Mashaoe, Honorable Mailem, Honorable Matowe, Honorable Volmarans, it will be Honorable Mashaoe, then Honorable Kula. Thank you, Chairperson. Chairperson, uh, I hope you will excuse me for not putting my video on. Um, Chairperson, let me start with uh, DDG Makubela and the department's uh, presentation. Um, I want to make a couple of comments and then, then some questions. Uh, the comments are, first of all, I think it's important that we note that we don't actually import, to the best of my knowledge, 
any oil or refined petroleum from Russia. Um, our major import sources of crude oil are Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Angola, uh, Ghana, Togo, and Norway, and we're importing about 450,000 barrels of crude a day. Um, we also don't import any refined products from Russia, where we, we're importing about 200,000 barrels a day, and those come from Oman, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, India, Singapore, and Bahrain. So while I accept that Russia as a um, significant player, and when, when we say significant, we must bear in mind that we're talking between 7 and 11% of global market production. Um, while that's a significant player, there are other sources of, of oil and petroleum products that we, we need to, to um, factor in, and we should, be, we should be looking at that rather than uh, focusing over much attention on, on Russia and its situation. I am concerned, Chairperson, that DDG Makubela's uh, presentation doesn't really address the the issue of the fuel price and and how it can be uh, resolved so that the impact on South African consumers and businesses is is uh, minimised. And to this end, I, I'm very curious: what is the status of the fuel price review that was uh, announced by? Minister Mantashe and uh, uh, Finance Minister Gorongwana, how far are we in that process? Has there been any consultation with NEDLAC and other stakeholders? Has there been any consultation with the, the fuel industry um, as to how we can mitigate the impact of, of fuel price increases? Has the, the, the structure of the fuel pricing model uh, been reviewed and, and what is the status of that? Um, I'm also concerned, Chair, that I've, I've raised this before, but I have a concern that we, we have insufficient strategic reserves. And this is something that goes back to 2007. Um, the Morani Commission report has not been fully implemented, and we don't have, have reserves of refined fuels. Now, that is a major, major concern. Um, I want to draw the committee's attention to DDG Makubela's comment about finding a buyer for SAPREV. My, uh, first of all, I have a question for the DDG. Does he have any indication on the um, margins that are, are made by refineries in South Africa? The reason I ask this question is that it would seem that refining in South Africa is uncompetitive in comparison to the mega refineries around the world. And, you know, if you, you, the, the big refineries are 500,000 barrels a day, a million barrels a day. There's a, there's a refinery in, in India that is 1,140 million barrels per day. That's 10 times the size of SAPREF. Now, my question is, are continued imports of unrefined crude the way to go? Are we competitive? in the global market having refineries in South Africa? And that's a question that I think needs urgent answering. Um, then moving on to the National Treasury presentation, um, I, I just had a question for Mr. Joel. Uh, first of all, thank you for the presentation. Um, on slide six, uh, my question is how up to date are your slides? Because you, you, you were forecasting um, the impact on inflation 
at 21 rand 60 per dollar for 93 octane. Um, and that's it's currently at 21 rand 35. We, we're probably looking at somewhere in the region of 27, 28 rand before the end of the year if the, the price continues the way it's going. So I'm concerned that your chart doesn't give us a realistic picture of what the, the impact is if we see significant prices uh, price increases on, on petrol. Uh, for Ms. Kasim, two questions. The first is with regard to the RAF levy and the general fuel levy, is there any possibility that those could be suspended as has been proposed by some sectors of civil society until such time as uh, fuel prices stabilize and we have a, a better feel for what's happening long-term in the fuel market? My second question is with regard to uh, slide seven, the the second bullet. Um, I, I'm just curious as to the impact of the um, uh, the impact of the the fact that we are now a net importer of of refined products um, and and a net importer of. of uh, of products rather than locally manufactured. What what is the impact on the pricing model, and what can be done in the short term to to address it? And and perhaps this is the the, the right point to to ask the question. You, you you've indicated a number of mitigation strategies, both short and medium term. And my question is really, what is being done to make those a reality? Is there any movement towards implementing the the um, Review of the the BFP. Is there any uh, any any movement on the the RAS? Um, and is there any movement on putting a price cap in place? So I, I'd really like some answers in that regard. Lastly, with regard to the CSIR presentation, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, the CSIR for a very very informative presentation, um, and it, it it really adds a lot of a lot of value to our discussions much broader than just this particular um, uh, uh, debate on fuel pricing. Um, I just want to reference slide 22, where you talk about the increasing usage of diesel-fired peakers and um, the year-to-date consumption of, of um diesel by those peakers on OCGTs. And you indicated that it's at 9%, where it should be around 3%, and that last year it was at 12%. Um, we saw last week that while we were at stage four load shedding, on several occasions, ESCOM did not use any OCGTs during the, the stage four load shedding. So my question is, is that reflective of a supply side issue of diesel? Are there shortages of diesel that are impacting on ESCOM's ability, or is it a financial constraint, or are there other issues there? I don't know if you have the answer to that. Maybe it's a question we should be asking ESCOM, but um, <clears throat> it's, it's certainly something that is of concern. Um, and then just on slide 24, there, there are two things that I want to pull out of here um, that I think we need to, to address, and, and I, I hope Minister Mantashe is still on, because I think it's important that we address them. Um, I welcome all these inputs. I think they are things uh, that we... I am still here, Mr. Mela. 
Thank you, Minister. Um, we welcome the inputs here, and I think it's things that we've been talking about for a long time, particularly as this committee, but especially the point that we, we need to address in your last bullet point, the red tape uh, in NURSA around the 100 megawatt exemption. The reality is that the, the process that is followed, even if you are below 100 megawatt generation, you pretty much have to follow the same process as if you were applying for a license. And Minister, uh, I really hope that you, you take it to heart and take it back to NURSA, that we need to look at simplifying, uh, getting rid of some of that red tape. Uh, it was something that the, the, the president committed to in SONA. So I really hope that there's something that can be done about that. The other thing that I, I hope the minister has taken note of was your uh, recommendation that we accelerate the REIPP uh, because we urgently need to bring additional power onto the grid. Thank you, Chairperson. Um, thank you very much, Chair. Um, greetings to everyone that's in the meeting. Um, I'd also like to just start by, by welcoming um, the three reports, which were quite informative. I think also the report of CSIR um, has given us in terms of information that um, will assist in shaping future conversations um, just around uh, minerals and energy in general. Um, so I just have a few questions or a few um, concerns rather. Um, the first one, it's on the report of the department. Um, I think the, the reality is that where we find ourselves right now um, as a country, it is at a very vulnerable um, and close to crisis um, situation. And that is also stemming from the fact that um, South Africa has placed itself mostly as a consumer in a lot of things. Um, we do not have things that we can clearly say that this is produced by us or we have ownership over this, um, including um, um, petroleum or fuel. Um, so then the COVID-19 pandemic as well should have sort of in a way um, made us um, think outside the box and perhaps even review some of our our positionality rather as a country in terms of what are the main things that we need to actually strengthen so that we are not always dependent on, 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 on geopolitics or we're not always dependent outside. Um, as we find ourselves right now, when the world sneezes, um, we catch the flu and that is, should necessarily not be the case. Um, so the reality is right now that the war um, in Russia and Ukraine it might um, take longer. It will not just stop now. Um, secondly, it might even intensify. So I'm interested in what are the measures that are being put in place as in right now, as in that have been put in place, number one, and that are going to be put in place right now or in the immediate um, to make sure that we cushion ourselves as a country from the after effects that we have spoken about in this meeting. Um, or the implications of the of the of the war on number one, the uh, our access to fuel, and secondly, on overall the economy. Um, so that is the best one. Like we need to actually think like worst case scenario, 
um, and put certain measures in place. Um, I think some of them have been spoken to, like the issue of that people must perhaps start working from home so that we start saving fuel before we run out. Um, we also need to look into negotiating with our fuel producers because I remember in the one of the um, meetings that we had, we had indicated that we do have African countries that are supplying us with fuel. Um, understanding the politics in the world as well, the West will always cover each other um, as it happened during COVID-19 where they always covered each other and Africa was found wanting and scrambling. So perhaps we need to start having those conversations with African countries to see how we can assist each other and other countries, by the way. Um, I think also we need to now look into um, negotiating perhaps even with the treasury to start putting re relief funds um, so that should it really get to where we think that it's going to go, um, we are not found scrambling or wanting. Um, and not only must we put money aside for relief funds, but we must put measures in place to make sure that that money does go to people that it was intended to, because we have also, those are lessons we should perhaps have learned uh, from the relief funds that were issued during COVID-19 or for COVID-19, that a lot of that money is still unaccounted for. A lot of money has not necessarily gone to the people that's intended for, and people have still not been held accountable for misusing um, and defrauding um, a very vulnerable situation. So I think um, that's the one thing, what are the measures that we are going to put in place and what are the measures that we're putting in place right now? Um, the second one, um, I think it's on the question of exploration and the need for us to explore our shores. Um, the reality is really that the conversation on exploration is happening in silos. One person is pulling one direction, the other is pulling another direction. And it is important that um, the, the, the relevant departments or the relevant stakeholders must actually find um, each other and have those conversations. But it is also important that the conversation on exploration must also happen um, alongside um, local ownership of all those um, resources rather that we will be exploring from our shores. It should also be speaking about local beneficiation because currently what is happening is that we're speaking about exploration but the people that are actually doing the exploration and who are bound to make most of the profit are multinational corporations, which therefore means that as um, South Africa, we're still not going to benefit as much as we should. So we should actually look into um, local beneficiation. We should look into owning our resources, especially resources that are in our land. Over and above that, it is important that we do not dismiss um, the concerns that communities have around their livelihoods, around the environment, around water resources. And therefore, there needs to be um, a breaking ground um, between the two. And all exploration methods that are being used must not be harmful because the reality is that if I must explore and my exploring in a particular area means that the fishermen there are now not going to lose their jobs, or the, there's going to be pollution and all these things, then it does not assist. So we need to find a way and make sure that 
all exploration and methods that are going to be used are not harmful to the environment. They are not harmful to the livelihoods of the people and they do not impact um, the water systems because South Africa already is struggling with the issues of water. On the issue of, I um, think that the third issue that I want to address is the one of saving um, the refineries. I think here as well, I just want to quickly refer to the last meeting where we discussed um, refineries at, at length. I think we're discussing, I think around April last year, we're discussing um, refineries in South Africa and also the basic fuel price. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they, they seemed to be um, not necessarily clear direction whether we want to save the refineries or whether we just want to allow things as they are. So I do uh, commend or I do agree with the fact that we need to do everything humanly possible to save um, the refineries. Uh, but over and above, I'm just interested as well, because I think that the conversations that we had in that meeting was that um, South Africa must look into developing a mega refinery. So in the last 11 months since we had that conversation, what has been happening regarding that? I think one other thing that was discussed was that um, project in Tom was supposed to have been um, started on time. Um, and had it started on time, then perhaps South Africa would have been cushioned to a certain extent from some of the negative impacts uh, that are happening or that are coming along with the closure of refineries. So can we perhaps um, get some feedback as well in terms of that, what, what has happened in the past 11 months since we had that conversation? Um, there was also a mention of um, Saudi Aramco that had wanted to open a refinery in the Richards Bay, but then because of COVID-19, there were implications. Um, has there been any developments since then? Um, and I think one other one, it was a matter of um, capacitating um, some ready and capacitating the research um, entities um, in the country, not just in the department, um, to have an energy-focused research, which we've seen is, is the, re the report from CSIR. But also what is what I would like to understand, what I would like to know is whether the research that these um, departments or these entities is doing does inform um, the departments when they are formulating laws, when they are formulating policies, when they are making decisions. Um, and more importantly, whether there is a collaboration because the conversations that we're having around even refineries and fuel, um, they do affect other departments as well, the environmental affairs, they affect public enterprise, they affect um, science and technology. So what has been the collaboration or rather the conversations between those departments to make sure that there is a collaborative effort to save the country or to cushion the country using the research that is there um, already. Um, and then on the report from National Treasury, I think this one would affect both National Treasury and the department. Um, and I think it will also be in reference to the meeting we had in April last year, specifically on the basic fuel price. I see the report from Treasury is referring to a report or a discussion document rather um, that was issued in 2018. Um, my question there as well is that I think we did discuss um, a lot of things at length last year where we had actually 
requested that the department must look into reviewing the, the basic fuel price, um, that it must also look into um, there are the freight premium and all these things. And, and I'd like to, to get feedback rather instead of the, the report of 2018 in terms of what has happened um, in the 11 months since that um, mandate rather was given to the department. Um, and I think on the report of CSIR, um, I think the report was, um, it, it, it assisted a lot. I actually learned quite a lot from it as well. Um, but I think my question really is on the, on the advocacy to move from fuel um, generated or fuel using fuel for, for transport um, to using electric uh, electrified cars. Um, and we have a situation in South Africa where we can barely even put the lights on. So as much as we'd be taking out pressure on liquid fuels, but if we then move to electricity or electrification, what would that entail? Is it something that is even feasible? Um, or what is it that we could actually even... Um, what conversations we could even have um, with basic um, basic households as well, who are saying, look, electricity is expensive as it is. Um, we are experiencing load shedding. There's so much uncertainty generally in the country around electricity generation. So how do we then um, want to move to electrified cars and all these things? How do we work around that? I think those are the three questions I have for now, Chair. If something else comes up, I will raise my hand. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Matova. If time also permits, you considered. Uh, I, I just ignored, uh, it was brought to my attention before uh, the last speaker, which is Honorable Ola. It's going to be Honorable Bosho. Please accept my apology. Uh, Honorable Bosho, welcome to the committee. Um, it, uh, it's, uh, it's not a question that uh, I, I, uh, uh, you were noticed, but uh, it has been brought to my attention that uh, your hand was up and you were part of the meeting. Uh, can I give in uh, to Honorable Von Marans? Um, uh, thank you and uh, greetings uh, to yourself, Chairperson. Uh, the Honorable Members, I greet you as well, the Minister. Uh, and the department participants on the platform as well. Um, uh, greetings to you. Uh, Chairperson, I <clears throat> am going to be a bit brief because a number of points have been um, uh, mentioned. Um, whilst I welcome the presentation uh, done here, uh, uh, specifically on the impact of uh, the increasing prices uh, on, the on our economy, and uh, alternatives that might be available or envisaged in addressing such uh, increases. Uh, the first presentation uh, by, by DMRE gives a background um, and uh, a, a great emphasis on reliance, um, uh, especially on, 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 on other countries. Um, it gives uh, emphasis on refineries, resources, and their capacities, and also investments, and, and how we should go around um, uh, lobbying 
and or making sure that some of the refineries that are closed um, are reopened. Uh, this this uh, negotiations and arrangements, I think, should be uh, pursued vigorously because on a number of occasions, we have had this um, a conversation and I would not know how far and how fast we have come um, to the, this uh, issue to be realized. Um, and I'm saying this um, um, around the backdrop of we don't have to wait until we are in a crisis mode or facing a crisis to be opening such avenues. Uh, the Russia-Ukraine war that is currently unfolding, Chairperson, it also highlights how fragile a number of global economies are, uh, which includes ourselves, South Africa. So it also shows that the ultimate um, uh, pricing, the oil-fuel pricing, is not necessarily in our hands. Um, which brings to uh, the fore the fuel price review that has been discussed. And um, uh, my recommendation and or input is that uh, that review, um, whether it's a review between the departments, uh, uh, a panel or so, uh, that review process must be fast-tracked uh, so that we can, we can see where we can um, uh, cut off in as far as a lot of the other issues around the levies are concerned. Um, a number of times we have heard about the stakeholders and then in the, in the, in, of other stakeholders. And in the short and medium term, uh, we have what is recommended now to go through the reviewing of the different levies, the discussion between the different affected departments um, should be uh, prioritized in view of the massive increase that I see is looming, uh, uh, I think we are going to face such. So CSIR uh, comes to the table with a number of options um, in the long term specifically, and there are also a number of options that they have uh, put some timeframes that can be kickstarted within three, four, five months, and also the question of them to be supported with um, uh, resources. Uh, I think the department should deliberately support such um, initiatives and such uh, endeavors so that we are always well prepared, well informed, and, and not face um, the situation where we are at the brink of um, a catastrophe that might happen within the pricing sector. So, so Chairperson, my input is that we must fast-track uh, the recommendations. We must also fast-track the discussions um, of the different departments that are involved so that we don't have uh, to deal with it in silos or wait until we must find each other in as far as who's the real champion and so on. We must not talk past each other. And I think that's where maybe uh, uh, some help will come from in as far as the departments themselves, the entities that are uh, different uh, talk and come up with a way forward in the uh, in the short term. Thanks, Chairperson. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Greetings to yourself. Uh, let me greet the Minister uh, together with uh, his Deputy Minister, Dr. Ngabani. Uh, welcome the presentations by the 
three entities. Uh, I have just two quick uh, questions. One is with regards to booking for a buyer uh, to purchase SAPREF just to avoid uh, shortages and uh, closure of SAPREF. Uh, a direct question to the department is that uh, why are they not looking for one of their entities in SEF or SEF itself to be the buyer and they're looking for someone else to purchase something that can easily rescue the country from um, the disaster that we are facing? Why are you looking far and not looking at yourselves? That is the first question. The second question goes to I believe the the national treasury. Um, in the future that we envisage uh, going to, there will be a shift, of course, uh, from uh, uh, petrol uh, and diesel to uh, electrified vehicles. Now, the future of REF, uh, Road Accident Fund, uh, now lies in the collection of the levies from uh, uh, petrol. Um, What is the envisaged uh, future of REF? Where are you going to get uh, uh, money to to fund uh, road accident fund in the event where uh, the move towards uh, electrified vehicles uh, happens in say 10 years, uh, do you see, do you still defu- see the future of REF lying with the collection of uh, money from petrol or a discussion should ensue uh, on where to, to put uh, the future of REF? It can be Department of Transport, I don't know, but uh, seemingly the the future of REF is, is going to shift from the, the its revenue base uh, to something else. Is there any discussion to that uh, regard? Thank you very much, uh, Chair. Honorable Bajov. Thank you, Honorable Chair. I hope I am clear. I have problems with my gadget. Um, I just want to ask uh, a a few short questions. Do the CSIR on that Sankey diagram, I also don't know if I uh, pronounced that exactly correctly, Um, but that of the energy use, uh, uh, quite a large line goes towards losses. What are those losses exactly? And then regarding the peaker oil prices, uh, the report refers to the fact uh, or to some prices, 15 rand a litre for diesel or 20 rand a litre for diesel. I just want to confirm, are those prices, um, do we know what is compensated for for diesel? Uh, Had it been 15 rand when the pump price was 15 rand or 20 rand or whatever? Um, I I think maybe that's a question to the department. I'm not quite sure about but what does ESCOM actually pay for the diesel. And then to the department, uh, I want to ask... uh, has there been any uh, attempt to compare timelines between the Hydrogen Society project of the Department of Science and Innovation with the timelines of new refineries or uh, increased capacity for refining and exploration on the coast? Because uh, as Honorable Malam has uh, 
indicated uh, information is that even existing refineries are taken offline or are contemplated to be taken offline because it's simply not uh, feasible. South Africa did not keep up with the, um, with the technology uh, in refining and the scale on which we refine is, is so small. Now, of course, that uh, delivers us to the, to the uncertainties of international um, politics, but uh, that tends not to last forever. Uh, and uh, huge investments that would have to be made into either or both um, exploration on our own coasts and uh, additional refineries as to be compared to the hydrogen as any comparisons uh, in, in these timelines, uh, timelines being done. Thank you, uh, Honorable Chair. Thank you, Honorable Kula. No, thank you very much, uh, Chairperson Man. Uh, firstly, greeting to the Minister and the Deputy Minister. Greetings to the Director General of the Department, the Capable Advocate Mukwena, and all other TDGs on the platform. Greetings to colleagues in the Portfolio Committee. Firstly, Chairperson, I think let me start by welcoming the presentation from the TMRE, the CSIR, as well as the Treasurer. And I must say, Chair, that the, uh, I don't think there would be any uh, discussion which has got to do with what is happening, uh, the conflict between the Russian Federation and uh, Ukraine, without uh, calling for an end to this war, Chairperson, uh, and calling for all parties that are involved in this war to go into the negotiation tables to avert the dire economic uh, uh, consequences of this war, as well as the loss of innocent lives uh, that happens uh, during such wars, Chairperson. I think, Chair, if you look at the uh, impact that this war has on our economy, it can tell because none of us at this point in time can anticipate when the war would end. But if you look at the rippling effects that it is likely to have in our country, it says that our country must continue to play a, meaning, a meaningful role in calling for a dialogue between the two affected countries. Uh, let me quickly zoom into what I've seen uh, suggested under the interventions, Chair. Uh, I think some of my colleagues in the Portfolio Committee have spoken to some of the issues, but I think it is important that uh, one speaks to some of them. One chair is that uh, the presentation made by Kirichi Makubela speaks to us depend that depending on important food and products is proving to be unreliable in the shifting geopolitical space. I want to understand, Chair, from the DDG, what is the plan of the department to ensure that we curtail our dependence on important food oil and products as a country? Because I don't think it is enough to say such is unreliable, and therefore, in light of the shifting geopolitical uh, 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 dynamics, uh, what, are, what, are, what are the suggestions that the department has to say we ought to stop the over-reliance on imported food and products? Yeah. Uh, one of the things I think my colleagues also spoke to uh, is the need to invest in the local refinery. 
that SAFs cannot be allowed, SAFREP cannot be allowed to close, that a buyer must be found. And I get the point raised by Honorable Mathaul, but I think the department will respond to that. But I want to understand, Chairperson, uh, that how far is the department in terms of finding, finding a buyer for SAFREP? And what will be the cost benefit of such? What will be the market share of SAFREP in the economy? Because Sometimes there is a temptation to discard certain things on the basis that they provide minimum value. But minimum value to me is better than zero value. Whether SAPREF can contribute a percent or two, it is, be- it is better that percent than nothing at all. So I'm moving from that point that would want to understand that uh, what, what, what is the progress in terms of finding a buyer for, for, for SAPREF capacity? In, ter- in terms of the intervention, they say, uh, uh, no, let me leave this one of the intervention, the, the, this one I wanted to raise. The other issue which I wanted to raise was that in the presentation, they say biofuels must be enabled as a matter of agency. When are we likely to see that uh, happening, uh, Chairperson? Because I think it will help to alleviate in terms of the of the situation. But there are other measures that are proposed by the DMRE, which I slightly have a problem with, and I think it's matters that we need to re-look into, especially around uh, the energy-saving measures that must be implemented. One of the measures suggested is that, which must be voluntary, is that uh, certain uh, companies must allow their employees to work from home. And I don't think that so we should be saying that should be voluntary. I think we should find a way, Chairperson, to regulate and say which companies will do that. Because if we say it is voluntary, what if there's nobody who then comes on board to volunteer to do that, Chairperson? So we, it says that we need to say, let's regulate that these are the companies we feel that must have staff working from home to alleviate the, the challenge. One of the things that has been suggested is the enforcement of speed limits uh, that must be increased to make minimize the fuel saving. And I think uh, as a committee, we would welcome such because it would help to, uh, to alleviate the, the challenge that is there. And uh, another issue which uh, I wanted to raise was the was around the presentation made by the CSIR, in terms of some of the companies that are consuming a lot of uh, fuel, for instance, in the mining space, in the transportation space, as well as ESCOM. Because in my view, I don't think, because none of us can say from where we are seated that this the war between the Russian Federation and Ukraine is likely to end at this stage. So without that knowledge, I think we ought to be in a position to take strict measures now rather than wait for the situation to be dire. So I wanted to check what are, what are the plans of the department to curtail some of these companies which are, are consuming a lot of diesel and a lot of oil and, and a lot of food oil. That how, when are we likely to put a cap on the usage, or, or, on the usage of, of oil? Jefferson was, yes, we can, we can say that motorists must use uh, so much amount of oil. But that will not be enough if we don't factor in 
individual companies which are consuming a lot of oil and diesel. So what are some of the plans to ensure that before even this matter goes out of hand, what are some of the plans to ensure that big companies also play a role in terms of uh, usage of limited amount of, of fuel? Because we can say to ordinary citizens, this is the amount of fuel they must use. But to companies who use billions and millions of liters of fuel, then there's no care for them. I don't think it's fair on individual citizens in this country. So what are some of the plans of the department to ensure that we can tell some of these big companies which are, are, are losing a lot of, of fuel? Thanks, Chairperson. Thank you very much, uh, uh, honorable members. Uh, without any further delays, uh, allow me, honorable minister, to to start the other way around, uh, CSIR and then um, the National Treasury and then the department. CSIR. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. Um, Clinton, can you please respond to the questions that are pertaining to the CSIR you put forward, please? Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Um, yeah, there, there are a number of them. Um, in terms of uh, maybe starting with the last one, the curtailment of com companies maybe that are using fuels in the plants, I think we need to be very cognizant of being able to provide alternatives um, to for those companies because the the economic impact of that, for example, curtailing diesel usage in mining or agriculture could have quite substantial knock-on economic impacts in terms of things such as food production um, and much-needed forex and revenue streams um, in the mining sector, and especially when we are faced at the moment with a bit of a commodity boom, um, you know, as, as electricity constraints have, um, you know, largely inhibited some of the, the, the economic opportunity to, to be able to, you know, capitalize on the present commodity boom. We, we don't want um, to further exasperate such a situation um, by curtailing liquid fuel usage. Um, and it'll be interesting to see then how the dynamics play out globally in terms of um, will there actually be constraints or will it simply be an element of, of pricing? Um, of course, one would be able to, to be able to provide the electrification alternative to those companies. And I think various mining houses would gladly accelerate the implementation of you know, greener solutions, but that then requires the ability to bring additional renewable energy capacity online very quickly. Um, either through reducing the, the red tech that was that was mentioned um, in terms of um, the presentness of processes so that the likes of mining houses and agriculture can get projects onto the grid quickly um, and the acceleration of, for example, the renewable energy procurement and the emergency response programs. So, so we, we need colleagues to get the um, new capacity in the electricity sector online as soon as possible through a combination of government central planning and private sector um, so that companies have the alternative because surely the solution here is not to say, well, you, you, you have to use less diesel, but 
you know, we can't transition to electricity because the power system is constrained. Um, that is a zero-sum game and not going to move the economy forward. Um, um, Mr. Bushoff raised the issue of the same key drawing and the, the losses. Um, when we convert energy such as um, coal or gas into another form like liquids, and it's the same if you see the, the efficiencies and the losses in the coal power generation sector, um, a large portion of the energy in that coal or that gas un unfortunately gets lost um, through the conversion process um, into things such as heat. Um, it's an inherent inefficiency in converting between energy sources, um, and it's unfortunate. So it's not that that is a wasted energy in a sense that it's something that we could be doing something with. It's just inherently when we convert coal and gas to liquid fuels, um, there's only a certain theoretical efficiency that we can achieve. So it's simply a consequence of that. <clears throat> and I think that's where the direct electrification um, of transport systems, excuse me, <clears throat> and liquid fuels is particularly attractive, um, is that it's inherently a lot more efficient. So, so not only can you um, transition away from liquid fuels, but overall, um, you're actually using less energy because the conversions um, from electricity, for example, an electric vehicle um, is, is very close to unity. So there's big opportunities there. Um, the ESCOM diesel price, I'm following up with the team um, in terms of the, the price that's paid for diesel, I think that would need to be directed directly to ESCOM. Um, you know, and there are two different types of, of peakers. There are the ESCOM-owned peakers, and there are the um, Department of Energy procured IPP peakers, um, with the fuel being a fast-through cost. So, um, you know, when one looks at the ESCOM annual report, one needs to be cognizant that it's not just ESCOM purchasing diesel, it's also the independent power producer peakers that are producing or purchasing diesel and then, you know, charging ESCOM capacity and energy costs. Um, uh, Mr. Bormerans, um uh, raised the issue of uh, support for the CSR and the support of the department. Um, very, very, very much welcome that, and we would be very keen to engage the department further as to um, the opportunities to, to collaborate and to be able to concentrate the various resources in the country um, to be able to accelerate the opportunities. So we would, as the CSR, most certainly welcome the opportunity to engage further and, and with other stakeholders, there are universities and other role players working in this space um, to create the catalytic new opportunities. So, so that's really appreciated. Um, uh, what are the, the issues there around um, the collaboration of, of research and how it flows into policy and plans? Um, and I think that really talks to the mandate of the CSR and, and in particular, um, the role that, that we need to play. I mean, we're not there to pronounce on policy um, to, you know, to, to do what the department and others are inherently there to do, um, produce resource plans, integrated energy plans for the country. Um, but we can provide input and be part of those processes, providing the R&D and the data um, on these new technologies and opportunities that can then inform the department and other stakeholders in, in determining policy. So ours is 
is a function to support. And I think that talks to um, the issue then of, of resourcing and linking to the department and the opportunities there. Um, on the impact of electrification of transport on the power system, um, I touched on that, that earlier. Yes, it has an impact, but right now we could actually electrify a large, you know, a substantial portion of the transport system with literally only increasing electricity net consumption by maybe four or five percent. So, so through acceleration of the likes of the refit window rounds, um, we would be able to very quickly restore the balance and be able to to support the transition to things like EVs. Uh, the reality is that we have um, quite a lot of pump storage capacity already in the country. Um, so if we can get energy, any energy, onto the system quickly, it's going to free up capacity then to be able to do things such as EVs. Um, and the, the household impact of electric vehicles, um, I think any of you that might have um, driven an electric vehicle or operated one for some time, they are more expensive to purchase initially, but the running cost is a fraction of the cost of diesel. We're talking in the region of about a fifth of the running cost of a diesel, diesel comparable diesel vehicle. So, so if we can create the market for the local EV adoption, consumers will pay more initially upfront for the vehicle, um, and the financing costs will then, of course, be higher. Um, but the costs of running the electric vehicle are, are, are much lower, um, which translates into longer-term savings. Um, and then the, the, the questions on the acceleration of the REAP program um, and simplifying red tape that we raised, absolutely. I think we see huge opportunities for the country as have been touched on. Um, and if any of the CSR colleagues would like to add anything further in terms of our responses. Thank you. Yeah, perhaps very, very quickly um, on my side, I think um, just three things. Um, uh, Honorable Volmarans um, uh, made reference to CSR in looking largely on the, the, the longer term. Um, I mean, in, in, in our conversations with uh, some of the uh, municipalities, um, cities, things like lift clubs, um, if you look at the regulations around lift clubs, you know, you know, people coming together to say, let's, you know, save on costs, um, it, it can become, you know, quite cumbersome. Um, uh, although the, the newer re regulations in 2011 tried to make it easier and so forth, but still uh, you, you, you have problems. And also you have uh, issues of, you know, um, intimidation from, you know, you know, taxi operators and so forth. Uh, so making that environment a, a bit friendlier, you know, digitalizing that space so that it is easier to find a lift, lift club, it is safer and so forth. Uh, uh, you, 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 you can improve, you know, uh, costs um, or um, reduce costs for quite a, a number of, in, in the short term, a uh, number of people. Um, and then um, the issue of uh, the road accident uh, fund and the levy and so forth. We have a program at the CSR that we are funding um, around the transport safety laboratory. And part of that is to start modeling risks. So instead of look, saying that um, we have so many crashes or this site um, is a high accident zone, you start mod modeling the risks because if you have a handle on the risks, 
you um, you will ultimately be have a handle on the actual crashes. Uh, so what this uh, lab does is to look at various options um, uh, to implement in the system such that we can indeed you know model uh, the risk and intervene. Um, we're using a, a lot of equipment, uh, big data sensors, and so forth to show that you can you know measure risk, you can report the risk. We can verify risk, so it's an auditable you know, process. So the more we adopt those sort of uh, things in how we manage uh, the safety environment, the more we can reduce the the, the risk um, of you know funding crashes. Um, uh, in fact, if you look at the numbers, um, road accident fund uh, is going to be a bigger liability over time than ESCOM. I think uh, in the next year is projected to have liabilities uh, um, deficits to the tune of 500 billion. Uh, so if, if, if you don't do anything around that, um, then all you're doing is actually financing crashes. And, and part of that public transport subsidy policy, which actually uh, asks for about equivalent of 5% of GDP to financing you know, uh, mobility, public transport, you know, part of that is to manage safety. So uh, you don't want to manage um, finance mobility in peace mills. You want to create a, an environment where the one rent you know, is stretched sufficiently to cover a number of areas, uh, risks and so forth uh, included. So adopting uh, you know, the, that policy, uh, the draft uh, will, will help municipalities uh, essentially to, um, uh, to be able to implement. And then um, we, we've seen, um, still on the road exit fund, we've seen uh, under lockdown when alcohol, um, alcohol was limited um, uh, in terms of use, the crashes uh, reduced quite substantially, disproportionately, uh, even though you, you, you started opening up, um, the, 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 the crashes uh, reduced. So things like those uh, are practical things that you know, could be managed to, to reduce those deficits, improving um, you know, the, the enforcement you know, regime. Uh, things like um, you know, looking at how you insure, how you package insurance so that is less, less dependence on uh, you know, state funding uh, this risk, rather the users themselves um, you know, fund, uh, fund this thing so that that uh, money can be used more effectively in terms of mobility solutions you know, going forward. And then perhaps uh, la lastly, um, the, um, the, the, the issue of um, electrification of vehicles, I think is, is, is important um, in public transport. Uh, the capital subsidy, if, if looking at tax recapitalization, um, currently you, you, you're just funding the acquisition of vehicles. You need to be a bit more strategic in how you, you finance tax recapitalization. A majority of uh, the population makes use of um, uh, minibus taxes, so you want to make sure that you know you when you finance, it's, 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 it's a huge fund. Uh, so when you finance that, it is a bit more strategic rather than just acquisition of vehicles. Let me stop you. Yes, we are done, Chairperson. I think that covers all the questions that okay. relate to the CSIR. Thank you very much for the opportunity once more. Thank you, Chair. Um, there were quite a few questions for the Treasury. 
I'm going to ask uh, that we start with Ms. Alia Kasim first, uh, and then move to Mr. Clinton Joel, and then Ms. Jumebi Ubogu to respond to questions on the RAF. Thank you. Thanks, Chair, um, and thanks to, um, for all the questions. Um, so the first question is on, on South Africa, on the impact of South Africa being a net importer of fuel. Um, so, I mean, my point was rather that the price isn't reflective of the transition to being a, a net importer, and therefore it might not be appropriate. So the BFP is sort of a blunt instrument, and I think the idea behind this was it was to protect manufacturers so that they would um, invest in refining capacity, which they haven't necessarily done to the extent that was expected. Um, and I think it's important to remember that if we manufacture ourselves, we won't necessarily be able to reach economies of scale. And refineries are already um, putting up with a number of challenges. So there's fires where they have to stop production. Um, there's public violence that has an impact. Um, if fuel stations are impacted then downstream, then that affects upstream production. If staff can't get to work, if there are transport issues, I mean, those are some of the issues that affect refineries. Um, so we need to consider the cost of actually investing in refinery capacity um, compared to rather looking at like strategic the strategic stock policies. And there've been a number of suggestions there in terms of investing in storage capacity um, and other recommendations that should be considered in terms of dealing with security of supply issues. Um, then there was a question on the RAS methodology um, and where, we, where, where the DMRE is at on the review. Um, and I think that needs to be discussed I mean, they need to respond to that, but uh, we are still at, I mean, we've had a number of discussions with our colleagues in the DMRE. Um, we're on the same page in terms of what needs to be done. And um, we still need to discuss the timelines for the review. Um, yeah, I'm gonna hand over, well, um, my colleague, um, Dumeri Ubogo will take the, the uh, questions on the ref. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thanks, Chair. Um, so I, I think there were two questions on the wrap. The first being, um, and please do forgive me, I can't recall which honorable members actually asked the questions, I, but I do believe one was on the suspension of the RAF fuel levy. The first thing about that is that to actually suspend the RAF fuel levy will require a change in legislation. So the Road Accident um, Fund Act actually stipulates that the fund will be financed using a road accident fuel levy and that is paid directly into the into the national revenue fund which is why it's it's, got, it's always a direct charge against the fund so it's not appropriated um so i guess the the question is can that be done i guess technically yes if you change if you do change the legislation and there's a i'm not quite sure how much um immediate relief that would then give but in addition to that, the, the, the Road Accident Fund Act still remains. So the question around how do you then fund the road accident still needs to be answered because that, that deficit needs to be financed from somewhere. Um, at present, that's, I think, what's been transferred to the road accident every year is around $44 billion. 
So at least it would it could potentially leave a hole of 44 billion um, in the fiscal framework. I think the other question that was then asked around um, uh, the buoyancy of the task. Um, tax instrument that we currently use to fund the, the road accident fund, which is fuel levy. We, we are um, cognizant and mindful of the fact that as we do see more um, EVs on the road, and even as we just see more efficient cars, so cars that use um, fuel, um, fossil fuels, but they're just more efficient to use, you will find that those cars will then use less fuel, therefore will then pay less revenue. Um, and I think that's why it's quite imperative for us to then push the road accident, um, uh, the RAPS bill for the road accidents benefit scheme, which moves away from what we currently have with the road accident fund, which is effectively operates as an insurance to then move to a more defined benefit scheme. So it, it, we are well aware of what it will then cost us to continue to have um, a social benefit scheme that is tapped into as a trigger being, and the trigger being the road accident. Um, and even though we will still continue to use the road accident um, revenue, I mean, the road accident fuel levy to fi finance um, the RAPS bill, most likely. The big thing about that, it becomes something that we then know it's part of our social safety net, um, safety net. So as to be considered as part of um, how we then consider our old age grants, you know, and those kind of grants, because we kind of know how much it will cost us. We know numbers, we know what the defined benefits are. Um, and then with actual um, estimation, we can sort of guess how, how many accidents we're then having um, on the roads. And this is what we'd like to pay out, given that we know what the confines of the payment looks like. Thanks. I'll then hand over to Clinton. Um, thank you. Uh, so I think the last question from, from our side was from Honorable Malang, um, and that related to a question on slide six about how up-to-date the slides were um, and how realistic the, um, the estimate of petrol prices could be. So um, I think, first of all, thank you for the question. Um, the oil price and fuel price um, data um, incorporates the year-to-date data um, as at the time of the analysis. Um, I think the other important point to, to note is that we do make use of the um, Brent crude oil price futures, and um, these were sourced as of 9 March um, 2022. Um, and ultimately what we've seen from that is that um, the oil price is, is um, given that set of oil price futures, um, likely to, to peak in, in, in March, April, and then from there um, slowly um, easing throughout the remainder of 2022. Um, therefore, based on, on these oil price futures um, and the assumptions that we've utilized in, in these uh, scenarios, um, we do not assume that the oil price is likely to remain at the current levels for an extended period of time. Um, however, we do emphasize the, the point that the uncertainties around the conflicts and, and any possible escal escalations would pose upside risks to the oil price futures and then ultimately the price of fuel. Um, I think in, in addition, uh, another important point to note is that um, the table that we, we did project there is um, petrol price estimates um, presented as full year or annual estimates rather than um, current point estimates. Um, and so we're basically showing um, what the risks um, uh, could look like um, or, or what risks are posed for the 2022 estimates. 
Um, and then I think just the last point is um, obviously any developments around the, the RAND exchange rates um, may provide um, an offsetting impact um, as a result of elevated commodity prices. Um, thank you. Thank you, Chair. That concludes the responses from Treasury side. Okay. The Honourable Minister and uh, your team. Uh, I'm going to allow Mr. Makubela to answer or come in the two areas I want to comment on. Mr. Makubela. Uh, thank you. Honorable Minister, uh, thank you, Chair. The, the, let me start with the questions from Honorable Mailam. I think uh, when we mention the impact of the Russian Federation, we, it is true that currently we don't import any crude or you know, finished products. However, some of the areas where we import from, effectively, they are the ones that uh, import from the Russian Federation. So, for example, uh, Europe, uh, European countries, basically 58% of Europe's diesel comes from the Russian Federation. So whatever happens there is going to have an impact on uh, you know, on the global fuel supply in general, because then they have to go and seek alternatives when they can no longer be supplied. I think that's what we're trying to, um, you know, to, to raise as an issue there. It is important to also realize that, uh, you know, what happened at the beginning of the month is that, you know, one of the major OPEC members, Saudi Arabia, also decided to increase the price of crude oil for all jurisdictions. At the same time that we, are, we were beginning an, a, an economic emergency, if I can call it that. But that is the, what OPEC has decided to do, OPEC countries have decided to do. The, the issue of refining, I really would want that uh, that issue uh, be considered very carefully. If you import without having refinery capacity, you are not just importing petrol and diesel. You basically are importing, you know, all, even importing paraffin, importing jet fuel, lubricants, you know, bitumen for roads. It means if you don't have refining capacity, you are forced to then end up importing all of these benzene, you know, um, LPG. If you don't have a refinery, you have to import LPG in a country that has got energy constraints. So when we think about these things, about importing, we really have to look at what else are we losing by not having a refining capacity. Currently, you know, if you talk to oil companies, the refining margins are good. Um, and, and actually those who have closed their refineries are missing out. Um, the, 
Now Glencore, as I mentioned earlier, Glencore uh, owns the Astron refinery, and they have decided that uh, they are going to restart that refinery. They've invested in fixing what was uh, damaged. Now, a trader deciding to open a refinery uh, would not do so ordinarily if there were no returns. So that is a clear indication that, uh, you know, there is uh, a ret- there are returns to be made there. The, the, the one thing that we should not lose sight of is that India invested in export refineries, and that was the private sector. However, our view is that as the Indian consumption increases, that capacity will actually be redirected internally to service uh, the Indian uh, uh, requirements. Now, that will leave the globe in a very precarious situation. And so as we make all these uh, decisions, we need to look at what is likely to happen with a growing economy of India, which will want to consume more uh, liquid fuels. The the strategic stocks, I think I will will leave that one uh, for for my principal. On the issue of uh, raised by Honorable Matok, I think what we wanted to indicate is that the, 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 what we are seeing now is that cargoes are being redirected to the north. So again, as what happened with the vaccines, there is a tendency that we are observing that uh, a number of cargoes are being redirected to the north, and sooner or later the south is going to feel the impact of that. But we are looking at that, and uh, hopefully it won't get to, to that stage. The, I think on the issue of the relief fund, our view is that uh, we are in a global economic emergency. Um, let's forget the war, but there's a global economic emergency because you know certain countries won't be able to export, for example, the wheat. Will, will not come to the African continent because, you know, Ukraine probably won't be able to, um, you know, to export as much wheat as they used to. So these are things that are happening. So the prices of maize meal, for example, in our view, that's why we mentioned food production, would need to be protected in the short term because what is going to happen is that the price of wheat will increase and of course, the price of uh, you know where other staple foods will then increase. I think the intervention in the short term should be along that. Secondly, we said transportation, so the taxi and the bus industry, which carries the bulk of our working uh, uh, population, would need to be looked at. And these are short-term uh, measures that uh, would need to be implemented in our view. Uh, I did indicate that in New Zealand, the decision has been taken to suspend the fuel fuel levy 
But uh, of course, we, we can't comment on that as a department, but we're just saying that in the short term, that's what they have done. The PFP review, I think uh, the, the review, when we completed the review, I think the outcome was fairly disappointing uh, in that we, we netted uh, effectively around three cents. And we then said, let's, let's look some more uh, to go back to the public and say, well, after all this review, the three cents is all true. I think we, we, our view was that let's challenge ourselves even more. Hence, the, you know, the restart of uh, you know, the, the review to add other uh, components. On, on the issue of, um, and in fact, I think that also talks to the question that was raised by Honorable Volmaranos. The, the new refinery, uh, Saudi Arabia basically has you know, pulled out of that uh, because also they also have a strategy of selling uh, you know, refined products to us. Uh, so they basically abandoned that investment, but uh, we we don't believe that you know they are the only ones. There are others that will come uh, to the party. The issue of SAPEF, I will I will leave to my principals, uh, Honorable Mashaoli. The then on the. The issue of raised vulnerable Nguna. Um, perhaps I, I just need to clarify this just one point to say that on biofuel, biofuels need a subsidy uh, to start. And the same kind of subsidy that was considered, and I must be careful how I put this that was considered to enable renewable energies in the country. So we can't avoid uh, some kind of feed-in scheme for biofuels. But we believe that once you do that, then the industry will be able to take care of itself, the biofuels industry, that is. Um, then the issue of Again, the subref issue, I will, I will leave it. It's a bit more, more sensitive. Uh, I think, Honorable Minister, I would, I would end there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chairperson, uh, Honorable Members. Um, Honorable Mayor, ask a question. How far are the discussions between myself and Minister Kodongwana? Uh, they are still underway. But let me give you a taste of things that we're looking at. For example, that that tax is a levels uh, constitute 30% of the fee in the pump. Uh, would it work if it is suspended for a period? What will be the implication for the fiscals? All those issues are on the table for discussion. Secondly, uh, is it possible to remove 
the, the demand side uh, management level of 10 cents per liter on 195 or implement the price cap on 193 uh, or is it possible we're discussing that uh, availing part of the strategic stock to the local refiners uh, as the war business i'm just giving you a taste of things that are complex that we're discussing that discussion is underway now let me go to the, to the other one that we don't buy from Russia. Uh, there's something called market. Uh, uh, market doesn't mean, uh, it's not an issue of on which counter do you buy. Uh, market, but now where there's a cartel like OPEC, where price of coal is determined at global level, it is 140 uh, dollars per, per barrel. This one forty dollars per barrel, even if you buy it in Angola. So that issue is uh, ignoring a very important issue in terms of how markets work, particularly where there is a cartel. Uh, you raise the issue of red tape at NERSA, four hundred megawatt megawatts. I think we're missing a very important point there. Uh, there's no rate happen at NERSA. Actually, it's the easiest. When the when the Mineral Council raised an issue of uh, 340 uh, megawatts that were on the pipeline uh, that are blocked by obstacles in the regulations and so forth, I went to them. That's how I work. And asked them, where are the bottlenecks? They said to me, maybe you may follow it yourself. They said, no, there's no bottleneck on the DMRE and NASA. Uh, any uh, purchase of more than 10 megawatts requires compliance with NEMA, which is the environmental department. Because it is a dialing to everybody, uh, nobody questions them. And their inefficiencies are offloaded on DMRE and NASA. The reality of the matter is that DMRA and NERSA, no bottleneck, no red tape, but there are many other issues that are required for environmental compliance. That takes long. And we've raised it with the President. President, you actually whipped us up to say uh, no permit should take more than two months for compliance, uh, but uh, we hope you can use that with two other departments as well. And I'm raising that to you, Honorable Mayor, that the whip that we have for the DMRE, raise it to other departments as well that are involved in the process. So there is no coordinate, no red tape that is an answer on, in this regard. Actually, it is us who said we actually revised regulations there, but we have not seen a similar application after awards uh, permit. We're still waiting. If it comes, we'll and we discuss uh, the, it goes to this question of accelerating REIPP. Uh, we're not going to control of people who take uh, issue to court. They can take issues to court. 
That's where my savior is. The most important way is how do we transgress that transition, which is a journey? How do we undertake that journey? I think Cesar must come and have a discussion on that issue. Uh, because Tosho uh, has green pastures across the river. It's good, but how do we travel that journey? Today, we have a fleet of cultural postations. How do we, uh, actually, we said we don't close them, we said we actually scale uh, down. We don't say close down, we said scale down uh, coal power generation. And in that discussion, we must factor in the developments in the globe. Europe is ordering coal from us now because of the uh, conflict in Russia and, uh, and Ukraine. They are ordering it. And uh, our advice to the government is that you use that advantage, make as much money as you can, as long as it lasts. Make it. Uh, and we're talking to Transnet to facilitate the move. So my own view is that uh, we need a discussion, a more complex discussion, um, and there was a question that was asked, how do we limit vulnerability? There are two things that we think we should look into. One is exploration, and that's going to discover our own uh, oil and gas. That will reduce vulnerability. Number two, we must retain and increase our refining capacity. That's it. Can we get the use of diesel by petrol companies? Uh, there is only one company which uh, reduces demand when prices are going up. Uh, I won't mention the name. It's a unique situation where there is a company that when prices go up, it reduces demand and encourages people to reduce demand. It's not a normal economic Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Lucy. Thank you, uh, the Honorable Minister and the DM. Um, uh, the National Treasury and CSIR. Because of time, I was going to, to raise some of the questions of, of clarity, but I think uh, I will be doing injustice. Let me keep those issues. I want to suggest honorable members, because to me, this is a matter of emergency, that uh, <clears throat> um, if members allow, maybe let's now narrow things down. We have received the presentations from the department twice, if not thrice, twice. The initial uh, presentation was exactly on the basic fuel price. I think now when it came back and the issues raised are now what compounds the problem that we have had. I would have only said that thing when I remember that the issue of uh, uh, the, 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 the conflict uh, in Europe, specifically Russia, Europe, Ukraine, has just compounded a problem that we have. So that I was, uh, my concern was that an impression might be created that uh, 
there it is the basis of the crisis uh, as far as the fuel prices are concerned. The second thing, um, I did give a guide, and I knew that we would be tempted. In our discussion, honorable members, I think there are things that are outside our scope. I did say to CSIR, there are things that are outside our scope that directly fall on the, on the, on the other portfolio committees, in particular, for example, on transport. Um, maybe in our discussion, we have to take into consideration based on what we have, uh, whether this discussion can only be limited and be reduced to this portfolio committee. But in my view, uh, a time has arrived where we must confront the real issue. We must take a stance. um, Whether it's a stance by disagreement, that's fine. We can't have a discussion that is perpetual, does not reach. I always say members of parliament have a duty and a responsibility that amongst other issues is to is to is to is to is to make uh, clear where do they stand on the matter and uh, if it means they must disagree, so be it. But it doesn't mean we, we, we can't take decisions. Uh, and see whether we can motivate for us to be given extra, we're given presentation to agree with all those things that are being raised. We, we will try and combine as much as possible from the last discussion or the initial discussion on the basic fuel price, and then we will come to the committee to have a better deliberation from a committee point of view. Whilst we 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 must say or we may uh, acknowledge and recognize the fact that the executive uh, also itself is busy engaging uh, and uh, each other, especially the GMRE and the national treasurer. Let's look at uh, one then from where we sit as a committee. Um, I think some of the things that were raised by CSIR, they go even beyond um, the regulatory mandate of the industry. If it means, like, uh, yes, let's note that ministry, if it means we must also consider projects underway, how will they assist in mitigating against the, the situation? But I don't want to sit here and say if the conflict in, uh, between Russia and Ukraine resolves itself in whatever way it would mean the question that we are confronted with will not arise. Second area, it could be uh, what we call your low-hanging fruit or your immediate uh, 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 areas that we must take consideration of. And based on that, let's um, then see. Because if we think we'll get a very holistic, one-size-fits-all on every matter with regards to this issue, I don't think it's gonna, it, will, it will help us going forward. We must also acknowledge the fact that uh, amongst other challenges that we have is that part of the, max, the major consumption of uh, fuel uh, or diesel is simple because of the very same challenges that we are having. Once we've got a crisis, 
on uh, on uh, uh, with uh, electricity supply, especially your load shipping. It means consumption generally is going to be very high when it comes to this. So there is interconnectedness on many of the issues that we are dealing with, and I would suggest that let's find a way where we will finally say, from where we sit as a committee, here is what um, we want to put forward as a proposal, um, and 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 then take uh, take take that view uh, that we agreed on. Can you allow us, honourable members, to 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 go back and uh, prepare something? In the I don't want to say a report, but uh, a basis of the discussions since the first presentation that was made, and and I will ask you to do that uh, a comprehensive prepared presentation for discussion in the committee amongst ourselves, and uh, include the degree of agency on the matter. Can we? Can we live with that? If it means we must also go out and engage industry players or find other mechanisms to solicit uh, 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 contributions, let the committee make that call at that point when we have this discussion. Can you agree on that, honorable members? Chair? Yes, honorable madam. Thank you, Chair. Could I could I just ask two quick follow-ups to the Minister? Very short. My problem is that I don't know who else would want to do so. Okay, Chair. Please. Please. I beg you. I, I, I know, but um, can we do what we do usually do? Uh, if possible, write, put those questions in writing, just send them to Ari, and then Ari will send them to the Minister. But also, in those discussions, again, you will be allowed to express your views. If, if, if we cannot get a solution to them, we will find mechanism, all of us, on how to attend them uh, if they require the minister to, to respond to. I'm just avoiding to the temptation that might arise, and then we'll end up not finalizing on a, on a very serious matter. I think, I'm sorry to use I, I'm not individual. I'm going to say, it's a, for me, when it comes to the issue, this is a daily, is an issue that on daily basis confront our people, and we can't run away because it's at our own doorstep. So I was just making that proposal. Can we, is there anyone who'd want to move for that? If you are quiet, it means then we've got no, no view. We are three, Chair. Honorable Malenga is proposing that. Is, is proposing that. Is there anyone who seconds Honorable Malenga? I am that? seconding, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Matobe. Honorable Minister, as a responsible uh, executive authority, yes, thank you very much with your team, but you can see the matter is still a matter that will remain seized with, and thank you for availing yourself and the Deputy Minister. Uh, from time to time, we'll come knocking on your door. We see uh, that uh, the most thing, yes, you are accountable uh, to this by oversight responsibility, but I always say accountability also includes cooperation in finding common solutions. So we will we really appreciate to have those engagement and from time to time uh, uh, your availability and your team 
uh, is always appreciated and to so that we can find we will quickly find solutions on the on, on, on these matters. We know and we wish you well with your counterpart of National Treasury uh, on trying to find a solution on a matter of this nature. I can't say it is second is second to, to other. To me, it is almost equal to some of the challenges because this economic impact is uh, something that is felt by anyone who is uh, a South African or who is based in South Africa. Thank you very much to you, Honorable Minister, and your team, as well as CSIR and National Treasure. Thank you, Honorable Zebo. I've noticed that other departments didn't bring their ministers or deputy ministers. Uh, I I, I took note of that. (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much. that 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 was it's a it's all required cabinet decision. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, is it possible, Ayanda and uh, Ari, in the ten minutes to take the minutes? Yes, chair. Yes, please.
Is there any move of the minute? Sorry, I'm talking. <laughs> In the absence of corrections. Okay. Yes, Boblan. Yeah, yes, Chapasin. Um when we went through uh, on the voting part, uh, I'm not sure if it was captured the reason for our abstinence uh, on the note that was uh, submitted by uh, Honorable Matogwe, uh, because we had abstained on the basis that we had network issues and we couldn't get a full presentation or rather capture a full uh, presentation on the legal advice. And we also couldn't uh, participate on the engagements uh, because of the same issues of network and load shedding. So hence our abstinence. I'm not sure I don't have that message of any uh, uh, check of honorable matter. But obviously when uh, there's an abstention, uh, it, and you don't have to explain why you explained was that was a voting. Uh, Members, they, they express when there's still a discussion. All the voting is just for and against. Uh, and I think it was accepted. Honorable matter when the man was explaining that because when the voting was happening, they couldn't be present. Uh, but they, they, they would be, uh, they will abstain. Or she, because it's the only one who was voting, by the way. Uh, with abstaining. There it is. I think, let me see it. Right. See whether it says I've been having serious network problems all day. Honorable has just informed me we are voting. Please note that we are, we are abstaining from voting on the basis that I've not been able to follow. Yes, that's what it says. But I'm not sure whether it should be captured. Uh, members, members can guide me to follow the deliberations and would want to make an informed decision. I understand the, the reason given, but on the, on the voting, I'm not sure uh, because it's just about numbers. I can be guided. Ari or Ayanda? Because my my difficulty, honourable lad, is that okay. if, if 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 we were to, to say you voted in favour and against, now the others will say then explain on that voting what voted for or why we voted against. It's just a reflection of voting. Yeah. I'm not sure where, where we should capture it though when it comes to the reason whether it should be. Uh, captured uh, under deliberations or discussions, I'm not sure. Yes, Honorable Malinga? When it comes to voting, abstaining is abstaining. Voting for is a, a voting for, and voting against is for. You don't have to elaborate on why you're abstaining or voting for. So it should just say EFF uh, delegation abstain in period. Yes, but also there's one, eh? 
is not true. So the other one, as an alternate, will vote if the other. So in this case, it would have been Honorable Madoff, but it was both of them. They couldn't get through. I'm not sure, Honorable, but uh, the problem is, I'm saying, when it can, when you vote, when it arrives at a voting, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult to explain because people will vote for or against the motion. Um, maybe, is there any member who wants to guide us? But we, it can be under voting. That's that is the only the only issue. Maybe if we combine this as a report, it can only be captured under when we do the report that on the report, uh, the reason for the FF uh, abstaining will be one, two, and three. Because at the end of the day, we have to do the conclusion on the basis of a report that will have to be tabled. Can you live with that? Noted, Chairman. Okay. Uh, is there any mover? Oh, there was a mover, Honorable uh, Malinga, or am I wrong? Oh, with that explanation, Chen, correction, that we adopt the case. Thank you. Okay. Is there any seconder? Uh, Chairperson, I, I, I stand to second uh, the motion with <clears throat> the minutes as. Um, uh, done by Mamaling. Okay. Can we then uh, go other? Hello? Uh, I think there was a voice. Uh, is there any matters arising? Yes, Chairperson. Uh, I have a matter arising. Yes, Chairperson. Hello. The issue of the decision to rescind the probe into the RMIPP was based on the legal opinion from the parliamentary legal advisor in which he stated that there was no appeal against the judgment. I have subsequently, in fact, on the day of the meeting, circulated the actual appeal document, which was lodged on the 18th of February. And I want to bring it to your attention that the information we received from the parliamentary legal advisor was factually incorrect. So my question then, Chair, is have we based the decision that this committee has taken on uh, incorrect legal advice? And if so, what action should be taken about that? Thank you, Chair. Okay. I don't want to, to, to be the only one who are men in the meeting. Look, let me, let me start from here. I don't know, Honorable Mellon, maybe we've got a completely different understanding. The first issue I tried to explain when, uh, Honor, when uh, 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 Mr. Tenchan explained, I said, to the best of my knowledge, what he said, they have not found any evidence that there was an appeal. I don't think it's correct, though, to say even if there was an appeal, the committee would not have rescinded the decision. The application, to the best of my knowledge, was an application is an application for leave to appeal. The judgment stands; it doesn't change. That's what I said. Two, I said the authority with information that could be received is the one that will be received from the committee directly or from the legal advice. And 
would I wouldn't I wouldn't I don't for me I wouldn't say the the, the question of of an appeal if it had been taken it was it would have been what would influence the committee to take any decision to the best of my knowledge the committee based on the judgment and the fact that the entire uh, and this is a sub subject we must allow when we voted that there is a different interpretation about it it was based on the fact that the whole process was being questioned. But uh, I will get, that's why I didn't want it to be from where I sit. But we can also ask uh, Mr. Dejana to explain himself with regards to the matter that only relates to the, to the issue of the appeal. Are there any other questions? Yes. Wait, wait, is there Honorable Malinga? Is there any other person? Yes, sir. Okay, Honorable Masaule. Yes, Honorable Malinga. Chairperson, we have no evidence that PNG appealed on the eight because even what was posted on the on the portfolio group, it has no stamp or date stamp of the appeal. Even if it's a, it's an electronic thing done, I think it, it should be clear. How do we know that DNG, uh, 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 we, we don't have that proof. We don't have that proof that it was uh, appealed within the 50 days made by the court. That, that, that's my, that's my, my, my only issue check. Chair, it, it, it would be unfortunate to agree that uh, the decision to rescind was based only on the uh, fact that there is an appeal or no appeal. If you remember correctly, that information came when we were wrapping up the discussion. But the discussion was around the fact that the court case itself, there were no material findings that there was influence in the entire process. And we went into town into explaining what is it that we had raised as the committee, what is it that the court has found not to be material findings uh, against the process. Now, it's disingenuous to base our rescinding uh, to one issue that uh, came at a later stage. In fact, there was an agreement that whether there's an appeal or no appeal, we are satisfied that the issue of the court uh, suggests that there is no other material facts that we may find and arrive at that are different to what was providing facts fact, uh, to the court case itself. So it, it, it's very disingenuous to, 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 to say uh, we had based our, our, our decision to rescind only on the appeals process and nothing else. Thank you. Honorable members, can we agree on one thing? Eh? One is that this matter is not going to go, whether we like it or not, as long as it's still going to be in courts, it's not going to go. And from time to time, we'll be invited 
as and when the situation demands to interact with this. There are three processes that happens. Uh, even I hear you, Honorable Malinga, the fact is, even if there is an application, the application will be leave to appeal. On a leave to appeal, it can be granted, it may not be granted. When the leave to appeal, it will be the appeal itself. Let's assume the appeal just, um, what do you call, hypothetically, let's assume the appeal is in favor of the applicant. It might then demand, based on the contents of that granting and success of the appeal, that the committee looks at the implications as raised by the court in its judgment. So it doesn't mean it will end, but for now, can we agree that there's a decision and that decision for now stands until there is a contrary, a contrary uh, process or outcome that will act contrary to what is existing where a committee of parliament, if it won't be us as individuals, those who will be coming after us will have to take the, the responsibility uh, of every part of it. Uh, so, so, so I, I wonder, can we put that and, and put it to, to to that extent, and then uh, move forward? Okay. Is there any other matter? Yes, honourable. Chair, um, on a separate matter, could I ask that the the minutes of that meeting be emailed to me as a PDF? Um, for some reason, I can't open the the Word document on any format. So if, if Rico could uh, send it to me as a PDF, I'd really appreciate that. Thank you, Chair. No, no, that's fine. What then we, we have to do, I don't know, maybe also in future, the thing we had taken, there are certain things a lot of members which don't have to, it's more or less the same thing with the main discussion of today. And I think it's going to be the same thing also when we deal with the issue with regards to the um, what do we call it this thing the the judgment on the on the what do you call it on the mining charter we will try we will do the, the minutes most definitely uh, it's an administrative matter uh, i'm not sure let me go back to the staff and then uh, we will have to to deal with the matter so that uh, it can also be, be tabled in, in, in for, for as a report of this committee. In the same way, the issue of the uh, fuel crisis, we have to follow, I think, similar procedure so that uh, most of the discussions what we take don't just become discussions that uh, do not get any factual, factual platform where it is relevant for them to get that. Uh, in the absence of any other matter, uh, can we can, we, can I then uh, declare the meeting adjourned? We are meeting on Friday again, isn't it, uh, Ari? Correct, uh, Mancosa and Labour Movement on the September 2021 court um, judgment on the final chapter. Thank you very much, honourable members. The meeting stands adjourned. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Chair. Recording stopped. We don't have a meeting of our own, Honorable Malinga, we're going, all of us.